Alright, cool. So, we're here uh, again. This is Richard Wooten Podcast, episode three. And I don't even know if we've actually said your name. Damn. Um, you may have said it at some point, just in passing, but no. <laughs> I, I am a Robert Rabel. <laughs> and, you know, so uh, we're... I, I realized this week as I was sort of thinking about thinking back on this on this stuff, and it's like we're we really are just having the conversations that we normally have. Yep, we're just kind of putting mics and headphones and, and cameras in front of it, so and we're only sort of giving the vaguest notion of attention to like what's going on. Yeah, here. Yeah, so yeah, I have like there's going to be some issues in the last one. Uh, that I don't know how I'm gonna fix because we're like talking about albums, but we're like ho- I'm like holding up a CD and we're like, oh yeah, that motherfucker. <laughs> right. and, oh, of course you picked that one. Of course he picked that one. Like, yeah, yeah like we're not even. It's not even. Uh, didn't say anything. Uh, yeah, we 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 sort of rectified that a little ways through, oh, but we, uh, yeah, we didn't go back and like towards the end, okay. the way end well, of it. A, um, a little ways from the end is what I meant to say. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, like we're we're gonna get better at this. As we go, as we sort of understand the medium, uh, become podcasters, yeah, professional. I guess, I guess so. You know, well, so I, 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 I thought all I had to do was get this arm, this like this like fancy boom arm. I thought right. that was all I needed to do. I thought it had like an auto, an auto stop, like it would let me know in some way, like it would sort of automatically cut out, you know, or or like it would <laughs> remind me. Like I thought this was like. I thought it was like the producer pack. Like, I thought it came with a producer. Yeah. I thought with these fancy microphones, it would also add, like, the Chirons and shit to the video and tell you, like, who we are and what we're talking about. Yeah. And the yeah. Chirons, a little thing at the bottom. Is that what that is? That's what that's called. I, yeah. I didn't know. Thank thank you for – see, like, that, that, that shows how long we've known each other because you're like, oh, I could tell for that eyebrow twitch. Richard didn't know, <laughs> doesn't know what the hell I'm talking about. Oh. Uh, it's handy. So, so, anyway, that's that's sort of the – the the dig um so so in that same vein uh i don't know last time or the time before if we actually said what the thing was that we were talking about explicitly probably not probably not probably not i think i'm gonna go back and slap intros on those um so so yeah so this episode so we did our very first episode was this a thing we were calling like a musicology you know, because or a proto musicology where we're we're making these playlists, making the other person listen to them, and we're sort of trying to create an environment, like what the musical environment was for us during a certain period of time. And the first one was, um, basically the what I was calling pre-agency, so music you were just exposed to by your parents. So leading up to around sort of before sixth grade, because for me, it was around sixth grade when I started to choose. Yeah. And I want to listen to this. And I got yep. my own CD player now Ooh. or my own, you know, you started to have more Fancy. agency. Fancy sixth grader. Yeah, I, I was. Man. Disc man. Yeah. Um, Mine wasn't until like after seventh grade. Oh, man. So. Just, that, so that colors a bit of this of my list today, for example. Right, 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 so, right. So, but yeah. So, the, so the first episode was yeah, like pre sort of agency, mm-hmm. which was the music that was around and just playing that we didn't necessarily choose to be playing. Um, 
Right. And it was mostly our parents' music yeah. um, or maybe something that a neighbor kid exposed us to. But it was all I – re- I really enjoyed going through that much more than I thought I would because uh, it felt it was so personal, you know. Yeah. Uh, a lot of nostalgia there. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of sort of rediscovering things and listening to things that you hadn't listened to in 20 years and being like yeah. – and just sort of being like, how fucking good is Alabama? Jesus. <laughs> and <laughs> you do need a fiddle if you're gonna if you're gonna play the band. <laughs> Damn. So this what we decided to do on this one is sort of just carry that forward. So this is sort of for me, this was covering like the period covering the period from more or less uh like sixth grade uh up till I guess like the summer before eighth grade. So it's sort of like a two year period whenever I started to sort of like 94 to 96. That's really, that's really the, the, the years that this covers for me. Yeah. So, so yeah. So when you let me know that my, my initial reaction was like, cause you're, I think your reasoning was primarily because that was when shit changed to a certain degree and mm-hmm. you sort of started seeing yourself as a musician a bit more. That that happens. That started to ha- that happened sort of in between eighth grade and and high school. Okay, and so after I, I that's I was initially that was the first sort of target point I was going for. But then, at, but that would have been like three and a half hours, and I was like, I I don't I don't let's let's keep this down to like two, <laughs> keep these playlists down to two. Yeah. So I decided to cut it off. So for for me. You know, there's sort of maybe I'll just do that. I'll give you the end caps for this era for me. So the the initial era or the the, the beginning of it is is hearing Aerosmith's "Eat the Rich." So I was over at a friend's house, and there was a a a, a neighbor there. She, it was a girl. She was older than us, and she had the Get a Grip cassette. Ooh. And she pl- and she put that on for whatever reason, and I heard I heard the drums, I heard "Eat the Rich," and that like changed my life. So, nice. and then later I was over at another family friend's house, and they had like a little kid drum drum set there, and so I walked up to it and I like hit hit all the things, figured out what all the sounds were, and then started playing "Eat the Rich." I did. Damn, I did. I got. <laughs> I, I figured out the intro. You know, I was like, okay, that's a, that's this one, and this one, doom doom, dun dun. You know, and then I was like, that, you know, ding, oh, that's this one, that's this one. You know what I mean? And so, I then like showed my mom, and she was like, well, shit. <laughs> I guess I gotta guess we gotta figure out <laughs> can see where this is going. Yeah. Um so that's sort of that that was sort of a, a big starting point. And then the ending we'll say the ending point. We'll give you the two the two bookends here. The the other bookend will be seeing my first concert, which was Pantera and White Zombie, seeing that as like a twelve year old. Oh, what a good show. And so wow. that that was that galvanized me. Because after that, seeing that seeing that show, it was like, okay, well, the decision has been made for me. I have to do that. <laughs> Drums aren't just a thing I like anymore. I'm like I have to do that. 
and so this this play the playlist I sent you is sort of a a, a journey from that that A to B of those, you know. Okay. So so it wasn't when you started seeing yourself as a musician; it was when the sort of seed was planted at that point. Which to, to become a drummer. To what? that was what you realized you needed to do. Are you talking about the Pantera show or the or here in Aerosmith? Yeah. He's like, I you need to do that. Yeah, because I mean, we already had I already had a band, you know, me and Jeremy and friends. We'd already started a band, mm-hmm. you know, and all those types of things. But whenever I saw, or was it more like you need to do what Vinnie Paul is doing? It was I have to do this for real. Like I, okay, okay, I I have to be on stage playing drums in front of people. I have to. I, you know, it was just, it was just very simple after that. It was like, okay, well I'm a drummer and, uh, and it was just, it was just very, you know, seeing Vinnie Paul play drums in person when I'm 12, just, it just, it it was very clear. It was made very apparent for me. I didn't have it. The choice was made for me was, was sort of how it felt. And so I started practicing a lot more. Everything got much more serious. It wasn't just. You know, that was whenever video games started to fade away and drums kind of became right. what the the thing that I cared the most about. And so this playlist is sort of me going from that sort of initial impulse of like, man, I like the way I like drums. And then sort of me navigating through just the music of the day and, and going through these little tangents. Mm-hmm. Sort of, and things like that. So, yeah. So mine, I guess, is is similar in a way. So, yeah. When you told me this, when you told me that that was sort of your initial uh, cutoff point, uh, my my initial reaction was, well, that's, uh, I'm probably going to do more like four or five years as opposed to like two or three years, because that seems more reasonable for me. Because I didn't really, I didn't really hit an an inflection point of any sort until later on. Mm-hmm. It didn't, nothing really changed for me as far as, uh, as, as, it, as drastically as it did for you. I see. Seemingly. Um, but as I sat down and actually started making this list, I realized that that was completely infeasible. There was way too much music that had to go on this list. Right. Um, even just for this time period, I, this was a, this was rough cuts here. This was fucking hard to cut. Uh, yeah, a lot of stuff off, and can keep it to roughly twenty songs, about two hours. Right. Um, and I I realized that that seventh. So I I didn't really pick this the right before seventh grade. Mm-hmm. Cut yeah, it was what yours was right or eighth grade. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was around so mid ninety six basically. Yeah. Right. Yes. So I didn't necessarily stick to that. I think I have some things that are like later ninety six or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, but thinking about what's going to come next in the next set of music i was like this is probably a pretty good cutoff point because things actually do change pretty significantly right for right. me regardless of what i thought maybe changed actually it turns out mm-hmm. well, and the thing that is so that is so interesting to me about this about this really this experiment that we're doing in sort of reflection and sort of almost almost like a, an archaeology yeah um is is how because we're the same age, we went to the same high school, the same junior high. Yeah. You you came to Dayton in seventh grade. Yes, that was my first year there. So, 
and, and and we were we've been in several bands together. It stands to reason that there should be more things that are the same. <laughs> well, so I think th- that's what's going to I think show its face next time a lot more. How how that we that we start to coalesce a little more in certain ways, yeah, for sure. Sure. But yeah, this time I realized like this is Last time was when we didn't get to choose what we listened to. This time was when we get to choose. And I realized that this is when I got way the fuck into music. Yeah. Like, right. That That's another thing that sort of, that sort of really, really tripped me out was realizing how much damn music I was consuming as yeah. a child in a meaningful way. Like all of this meant something to me. Yeah, totally. It, like, I mean, I had a, I had a really hard time cutting it down to this list as well like each song on here is is there for a very specific reason and there's sort of three or four more attached to it that i had to be like meh well i'll let that one go uh yeah so so yeah like that 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 is a you know i i didn't think these would be as different as they are so I, i guess i didn't really know until i sat down and did it but then once I started getting into it, I was like, oh, this is – I'm going to have this stuff and he is not going to know what this is <laughs> some, in some cases. <laughs> there, was some, there was some of – I've literally never – I've heard I'd heard of all of the artists. Yeah. But there were songs that's like, I've never heard this song. Cool. At all. <laughs> um, so, okay. So where do you want to, where do you want to start at? Ooh. Uh, where do you want to dig at? Um, so I think that – I don't I, know. I think one of the – maybe we'll just – riff on this so there's one story that i want to tell because it's super important um cool so i told the eat the rich story and then the other really important thing is uh wherever i may roam okay because i was driving around with my mom and a friend of hers they were both in the front seat and her friend was smoking pot and so and my mom's freaking out. She's like, "What are you doing? We're gonna blah 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 blah." And so then, Meta- then, then, so this song comes on the radio, mm-hmm. and her friend says, "Oh, Terry, don't worry about it." And her friend, uh, um, I'm like not wanting to say her name, but it was a woman. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, she like reaches down and she like cranks the radio up as far as it'll go forgetting i'm in the back seat <laughs> and so i certainly have a contact high i'm like 10 or 11 or something oh you're feeling it at this point and i'm and i'm and i'm hearing wherever i may roam just the first time i'm ever hearing it i'm in the back seat of this car i'm in the center like it's just the it's the perfect <laughs> you know i left my body because i didn't know sound could do what it was doing wow and that was what really solidified me towards being into heavy music that was okay. that was the hook that was what did it and that was what sent me down that path so the first two cds that i bought the first three cds were um aerosmith get a grip the black album and the last action hero soundtrack so quite a, I, quite a trio i think i got the mighty ducks 2 soundtrack in there too 
Uh, but that didn't leave as much of a lasting impact. It was like, you know, we will rock you. We are the champions. Uh-huh. And whoop, there it is. Okay. So. It's like kind, of, kind of typical, like, 90s mu- movie kid shit. Right, yeah. yeah. Okay, fair. So, yeah, it's it's impossible to overstate what a big deal it was. Like, how sort of, like, that's that's one of those hinge points. That's one of those pivot points in my life. Mm-hmm. And so, but then that sort of just sent me down you know, like I would just go down these rabbit holes and I was like, well, man, if you like a band, then you like a band. So I bought, I got into everything Aerosmith. I loved all of it. I got into all of the eras. I loved the, so the new stuff at the time, like get a grip was the most recent album and they had just put out the greatest hit big ones. And so you had, uh, you know, the, the song Deuces, Deuces Are Wild was on the Beavis and Butthead soundtrack. Yeah. Uh, Beavis and Butthead Experience or whatever. You know, there was there was that. But I got all of it. And I and I just took it all in because I, I had no sort of concept of, well, you know, only some of an artist's output is good. I was like, well, I mean, I like this. Then I'm going to like all of it. And so this this right here, this was my Christmas present. In sixth grade, this is the Aerosmith. Oh, man. This is the Aerosmith box of fire. Okay. This is this is full of fire. I can I can verify. Yeah, this is thing is this thing is intense. How many how many records are in here? It's twelve. 12. So it's it's all of their Columbia releases. Okay. So it's their it's their seventies up to oh. the early eighties output. Now, what's kind of lame about it is like it's like twelve records, but. Like five of them are, or six of them are live records and greatest hits. So Columbia was milking it a bit. Sure. Yeah, totally. They wanted to fill out this. They had, they, they ordered boxes this size and they needed <laughs> yes. to, they needed to fill them out enough. They knew, they knew in, in 1980, they knew that they were going to order boxes this size. So they're like, all right, well, we need to release another Classics Live. We need Classics Live 2 by Aerosmith. And so, and so, but by me diving into that, and I I could do a whole episode just about Aerosmith, but me diving into that, I think that it laid the groundwork for, I think it laid the groundwork for me eventually getting into funk music, honestly. I could see that. Because so much of their earlier stuff was sort of this, it was almost like a hard Motown kind of vibe it was it's like you were taking the you were taking the american blues that had then been filtered through the british sensibilities you know and you had the british explosion or british invasion or whatever coming back and then they were taking that but then adding sort of uh an r&b take from the rhythm section you know joey kramer is very much like james brown with a like like (laughs) Joey Kramer is very much like an R&B drummer, um, just a more heavy-handed R&B drummer, as opposed to, say, like a John Bonham, you know, um, which John Bonham is, is that too, but there's John Bonham is just so much more bombastic, and Joey Kramer is not a very bombastic drummer. He's more of a – he's like a heavy pocket drummer. And so because him doing what he does – and Tom Hamilton laying, you know, like that rhythm section is what allows like Joe Perry to go out and Steven Tyler to go out in outer space and then still land on their feet. And okay. so me being so infatuated with this old school 70s music as a, you know, 
in this early agent, like early agency period, whenever I'm making my choices, that I feel like that planted some seed into me getting into funk and soul music that didn't happen until like 20 years later, really. Maybe not 20, but a long ass time. Substantially longer than you would have right. expected. Yeah. That was not, you know, that was not my sort of initial. That's cool though, because uh, yeah, I think I probably have things like that too. If I thought about it in that way, um, it sort of just it didn't plant a seed. It's, it like opened a door that you didn't yeah. really go through for a while, right? It just like gave you the option to do that, right? The, the right. Per- permission in a way. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a good way to think about. It. I mean, because I remember like there's a there's a CD in here called Live Bootleg, yeah, and they do like a James Brown cover on it. You know, mother popcorn, and mother popcorn, and so I remember thinking, like at the time, like okay, well then that means James Brown's good. That means James Brown's legit. That means James Brown's good stuff. You know, as as, I mean, I'm like ten, I'm eleven, you know, and so then later on, when I see Brad Wilk from Rage Against the Machine talking about that in a, you know, in a Modern Drummer interview, that he would go to sleep and just listen to James Brown music on repeat. I'm like, oh, that's what you got to do. Totally, totally. I went and got a James Brown CD and listened to it on repeat when I slept. You know, so it. Yeah. But uh, you know, but all all these things like sort of connect in this weird, you know, in this weird way, and. The thing that sort of surprised me, sort of in broad strokes, when I sort of reflected on this, um, was how important how important video media was in determining my tastes. So my a lot of the things from my playlist are they come from they come from the Last Action Hero soundtrack, right? They come from. Um, and, and, and most of it, yeah. the biggest hinge point is this, totally the, the Woodstock 94 soundtrack, which I also had the VHS for. Mm-hmm. And so sort of similar to that. Well, and then, and then another whole section of it comes from this like six hours of, of MTV that my aunt taped for me because, and I think this is going to be the main difference. This is the big cultural difference is that Absolutely. I didn't have MTV. Absolutely. Yeah. And so I only had six hours of MTV. The that, same six hours. The same six <laughs> hours that I would watch over and over that my aunt had like sent me. She sent, she, she taped it one night and then oh. sent it to me in the mail. All that fucking rules. Wow. And, and so, and it, and she, she, she taped it like, it was like from midnight to 6 a.m. So it was all videos. It was n- no shows, no reality TV, just all videos. Oh, it's great. And so. Do you remember what time period exactly it was? Like what year? What? I can tell you what videos were on it. Uh, okay. So. That'll tell me what. It... I think it was 95. Okay. I think it was 95 because it had. Um, it had. It's not the Tupac track that you put mm-hmm. on, but the other big California s- Love. Yes, okay. it had that video on it, like with the Thunderdome and shit. Yes, and I I had seen Mad Max in the Thunderdome, so I like knew what it was referencing, but right. I was like, rap music isn't for me. So, <laughs> which I later got really really into that as that album as an adult. <laughs> um, but it had that. It had Red Hot Chili Peppers Aeroplane. It had okay. That was where I saw. That was where I got exposed to Corn. Had the Shoots and Ladders video. Oh, um, interesting. Garbage. Um, Only happy when it rains was the video on there. Uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers Aeroplane was on there. You said that one already. I did, but it could have been on there twice. It probably was. <laughs> so, but um, 
but yeah, so that those were the sort of the big ones that were on that. So so yeah, so it looks like a lot of your experience was sitting there watching MTV. Yeah, like what I came to realize over the course of making my list is that I was like voracious with music during mm-hmm. that time period. And uh, half of it came from MTV and half of it came from the radio. The buzz specifically was kind of the only thing I probably was listening to then. Because there was also like 101, which was the hard rock station or the blues rock station. And then there was like 93.7, which was the classic rock station. Right. I didn't give a fuck about those. I was listening to the buzz all day. And this was back when it was 107.5. 107.5. The, the buzz. buzz. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so they played, I mean, for the time, they they played a lot of good shit still how fucking weird was mid-90s music for real man it it was kind of all over the place in a way really was Uh, it really really was because they played like the newest alternative stuff but they also played uh some some like older rock that maybe 101 would have been playing Mm -hmm. i guess um and then they just played some weird stuff sometimes um yeah so i was the kind of person who would sit in front of either of these uh, methods of media and wait with a blank tape, VHS or cassette, for the thing that I wanted to hear and record yeah. it. And so the way that I found a lot of music was I would hear something, because what you had to do back in back in the day, if you heard something on the radio, MTV was a surefire. You would see the band and the album or, or the song name at the end, because they showed right. it beginning and the end. If you're listening to the radio, there's zero guarantee, and in fact, you usually don't get the the band or song title from the DJ after the song is finished. Right. So you just have to like pray that they said, "All right, and that was you know whatever you know." Dude, that was real big fish with you know sellout. Do, uh, do you have any? Do you have it? Do you remember any like misconceptions over like for the longest time you thought that this song was a different band than it was? Uh, I don't remember anything offhand, but I know that I did. I remember having that sensation for sure. I remember thinking that the first Bush, like one of the first Bush single, like there's no sex and violence or whatever. Everything's in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I was so confused that I couldn't find that on any of the Nirvana records that I had. Ooh. <laughs> Kurt, Kurt, Kurt rolls, rolls over his grave. in his yeah. grave. Totally. So, but, you know, I was 10. I was 10. So, but yeah. That, I was, that's what they were going for. So, it worked. Right. It was like <laughs> a, a cleaner, like a squeaky clean, like, gets the oil changed on time version of Nirvana. <laughs> and, just on the wrong side of the road. Is, yeah, 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 yeah. That was a good album, though. Sixteen Stone was. I love Machine Head. That song. I mean, I love Machine Head too. But that's beside the point. In any in any iteration, the Bush song, <laughs> the Deep Purple album, the metal band, all of it's great. Fair, fair. Um. So yeah, I that that was where all my all my picks came from. Essentially, mm-hmm. I wasn't at this point. I was no longer getting music from anybody. Really, I was just finding it all myself in these ways. And that was what became most important to me. Right, right. That um, that rings true for me, too. And I, I think that what's interesting, too, is that this period is, for me, you start to see where there's still some overlap of mine and my mother's sort of, we, we there would be things that we would get into that we would both listen to. Mm-hmm. And then there would be things that... Where and and sort of the the Woodstock '94 
big net sort of really encapsulates that in a lot of ways because I we both really really loved listening to Collective Soul and Candlebox. Nice. She wasn't so much into Nine Inch Nails though. Fair. And she wasn't so much into pre-black album Metallica. Also fair. You know, especially on the video probably like watching Nine Inch Nails throw like mud and keyboards and shit at each other. That such a good performance. That is one that performance won a Grammy. Did it really? It did. That wow. that that live performance of Happiness and Slavery won like the best metal Grammy that year or whatever. Best uh uh controlled destruction of a stage. That <laughs> demolition rather. I cannot put into words how much of an effect that nine inch nails happiness and slavery performance on Woodstock 94 had on me. I, I, I can't, it's, it was, I have every frame of that memorized and I have, I know everyone's moves <laughs> and, and it, and it was, it was like, I did so much air guitar trying to look like Robin Fink. <laughs> you could choreograph your own performance, your off-Broadway performance of the Woodstock 94 video. I could. Yeah. I could. It could do, I could do a one-man show of like, <laughs> and this is when Joe Cocker does this, and this is when Trent throws this, and then he pours the bottle on his head and he throws it, and then the keyboard just hops down, and then the drummer goes, and they do a weird edit. Like, it's ingrained. But that that intensity... Yeah, it was it was intoxicating. It was intoxicating like that, and sort of that that the that the visual intensity of the performance could match the sonic intensity, mm-hmm. and because and it it, I think another reason that Metallica's betrayal that came with Load, I think another reason that that didn't hit me as hard as other people is that my first visual of Metallica was how they looked at Woodstock 94. I'm kind of not remembering now. I know they're in here. So this is a whole other thing. So which, which one is it? They have, there's all these photos. I think it's the other one that has yeah. all the photos. Yeah. This is a whole have. other part of this Woodstock 94 thing. So they uh, don't tell you who, which artist is. Right. So, I just had to flip through here, and I was like, I think this is Metallica. Dude, I can't tell you how many fucking times I stared at this for so long trying to think about who was who. Do you know who I thought was Metallica? So th- this is James Hetfield, right? That is James Hetfield okay, so with, he's a, got like, with a mullet. He's got like the mullet. Uh, with a nasty mullet. Super nasty mullet. Uh, so who, okay, who did you think? Here, I'll find it. Okay. I'll find it. I'll find the picture that I thought that I thought was um, that I thought was Metallica. Okay. Because I know exactly what it yeah, is. Yeah, I wasn't sure if they had short short hair by this time. I like, guess that was the, like, the next year. No, okay, no. Um, but it wasn't. It, yeah, it wasn't eighties Metallica at this point. I thought this was Metallica. Fucking Collective Soul. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. I thought Collective Soul was because it's like four guys with guitars jamming out with long hair. You're like, of course, it's got to be Metallica. It's got to be Metallica. It's got to be Metallica. Oh, and so, yeah. Um. So so yeah, but so go and look at that footage of Metallica at Woodstock '94, and what you're going to see is you're going to see. You see James Hetfield with a mullet, like a rat tail mullet. <laughs> not even not even like a bold mullet, just a weird mullet. Uh Lars still has long hair. Jason has a shaved head and oh, right. and looks like just a broy jock from gym class. And Kirk Hammond has dreadlocks and half of them are like put in a ponytail and the other half are like draped on his face. And so 
them like cutting their hair. I was like, so what? It it didn't, I don't think that it hit me the same because my first visual of Metallica was not, well, you know, was how they looked at Woodstock 94, which is weird. They never looked like that ever again before or after. Right. And so, but this whole thing, like, like I thought that Les Claypool in here was Joe Cocker. So I think I did too. I think that was exactly who I thought. It's like, well, he's wearing America shit. He's old. Yeah, because you, well, you can't tell like what he actually is looking like because he's got this like American flag uh-huh. shirt and he's like his glasses and this weird hat and just looks like a goober. He's a goober, but it, yeah, this was this. I could do an episode on this book alone. Probably. I know. Uh, and it's, I'm just noticing that you've got the chili peppers in here with their, their light bulb hats. And then on the next page, I was like, well, wait a minute. If that's the chili peppers, who is this? That's Perry Farrell. I thought it was Dave Navarro. No, that's porno for pyros. Well, shit, that could have been Jane's addiction. They would have been close. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. Whatever. Anyway, (laughs) such a weird thing that was. Yeah. But I had that exact same experience of like going through there and like matching names to, to faces. Right. I, you know. So, so yeah, so that, but having like that, all these visuals attached to the music and like the intensity of the Nine Inch Nails performance. Um, Oh, I forgot Jackal was on here. Uh, But, but yeah, like that, that sort of just totally, I don't know. It just, it left such an impact. Yeah, I can, I can totally see that. And so, and it also, it also exposed me like this soundtrack is really great because it really ex- it's it's a really wide net that they cast yeah. with this lineup um you know cuz you do, you have you have let's see who else is on who else is on there like Crosby Stills and Nash is on there like Paul Rogers is on there playing with Slash and yeah like so you've got some like classic rock like that you've got uh yeah yeah Paul Rogers you got the Neville brothers in there you got Traffic right uh Peter Gabriel coming in at the end of the world music uh, but then you've got like uh, weirder stuff like uh, like uh, well, Porno for Pyros and Primus are kind of right together. Jackal, I guess, is also pretty strange. Yeah, Jackal is Jackal's pretty weird. Just Blind, like Blind Melon. Blind Melon. You got Salt and Peppa is like right. in there. Right, Cypress Hill. Cypress Hill's in there, uh, and then Bob Dylan as well. Just a, a really interesting like, eclectic collection. Right, and, and it was so cool because yeah, you know. I watched all of it. I didn't watch all of it every time. I didn't watch that Dylan performance every time I watched this later. But I never listened to that song, I don't think. Uh, maybe not. <laughs> and so but even though I didn't get into all of these artists, it it all of them being on this really validated and legitimized all of them. Sure. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And so but it did it also did leave quite the impact that hearing this live version of For Whom the Bell Tolls. Mm-hmm. You know, Metallica full clip doing their, you know, do, hey, 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 right. you know, and the, and the whole live approach to For Whom the Bell Tolls, how it's so, you know, so different than it is on the Ride the Lightning album. But I think that that led me to, I got really, really into Ride the Lightning. That always felt like my Metallica album, my post sort of, Black album, Metallica album, you know. Cool. And so the reason I picked the song Ride the Lightning was because I think that was my first exposure to these really sort of progressive kind of long winding arrangements. Mm. Every other song on this list has a pretty straightforward 
I was noticing that. Yeah. Arrangement, except for Ride the Lightning. So the other really progressive hmm. track on there is that Queensryche track. I was yeah, I was kind of surprised to see that. I, I was thinking that they were on here, but they're okay. They're on. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So I, I should say also about this one is yeah. Th- I also got obviously like way way into this album, but it was not till later on. It was not I until see. probably like. I don't know, 97, 98, like a, a, bit, a bit later. I see. Because um, I didn't have CD player until like 97. I see. Do you know where I bought this at? Media Play. I vaguely remember what that is. It was like a blue sign, mm-hmm. like yellow trim. Okay, yeah. I and it, it was it was a gigantic store in Humble. Yeah. And it, had, it was in four. It was a huge, it was like a Best Buy. It's what became Blockbuster Music later, no. isn't it? No. is a different place? No, it was bigger than that. It's like a Hobby Lobby or something. Oh, it was, it was like a Best Buy. Like you're saying, it was like a Best yeah. Buy size also. Yes. And it was right. in four quadrants. Like one quadrant was books, one quadrant right. was videos, one quadrant was games, and like right. video games, and one quadrant was music. Oh, yeah. I remember that now. I bought so many. So many things in this era I bought there because they were only in business for a brief period of time. <laughs> True. So, uh but yeah. Anyway. And so um so are these all so all of these things are all on your list are all things that had videos attached to them? Not all of them. Uh well, you know videos what? Videos or the buzz. Hmm. I think a lot of these actually did. Uh and so yeah, I I guess in contrast to your list where you've got sort of a theme for some of these and like a sort of a through line, you got like a few Aerosmith tracks, you got like mm-hmm. things that are are from these collections in here. Right. There's nothing like that at all on mine. <laughs> mine is completely just disparate shit from everywhere. Right. Um, all over the place. Uh, and yeah, the, the vast majority of the stuff from MTV, I would say, was just videos that I watched. But there are some specific ones that came from like watching Beavis and Butthead watch videos. Yeah. Stuff that I would never really seen anymore because MTV, even at that time, weren't playing videos or they weren't playing a given video for a long period of time. Mm -hmm. So they didn't play the same video. Like the Bjork video is a good example. I don't think they played that video at all when I was watching MTV for videos, but Beavis and Butthead watched it. So I saw it and I heard that song. That sort of thing, right? Okay. I think that actually happened for a few of these. Uh, but yeah, I don't, I don't really have a good place to like start talking about any of this shit. So if you have questions, feel free. <laughs> so there's, okay. no, there's no good entry point here. Okay. So, um, one of the things that hit me like in the first two tracks that was like, everything's in alphabetical order by artist, by the way. I don't know if you could tell. Are, are you kidding? Nope. So I Tupac is first. <laughs> oh, cause it's like the letter or the digit two. The letter and then, two. And then 311, yeah. The oh. natural progression. Oh, my God. <laughs> you fucking dodo. <laughs> I figured you would notice that. I didn't. Not oh, at all. Good. Well, because I, I spell Tupac with a T-U. So, and. <laughs> Tupac. Well, the first thing that hit me was I was like, man, Robert listened to music that had good bass lines in it. Okay. Because there's a really killer bass line in that Tupac track. Yeah. 311 has great bass. Yeah. Austin Chains. Yeah, totally. You know, Blues Traveler, you know, all sort of stuff. Uh, yeah. So that was a thing that hit me right off the bat. Good eye there, or good ear, I suppose. And um, so 311, so a lot a lot of these bands, and it sort of sounds like we have like a sort of reciprocal thing going on where we were, ended up being into the same things, a lot of the same things, but at different times. Yeah. Yeah. And so I didn't get into 311 until the mid 2000s. 
Ooh, interesting. Okay. Because there was a, there was a mutual friend. We'll call him JB. That uh, that 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 would annoy the piss out of me because he would just walk around singing "Beautiful Disaster." Oh, totally. And so I was like, <laughs> "Fuck that band. Fuck that number band." Uh, so so the, I have very specific memories of being at uh, well, probably just hanging out with him, but a, a, a different JB, if you will. <laughs> oh yeah, uh, there were two. I'm I'm talking about the one that we. I'm not talking about uh, the one that we started a band with. I'm not talking about Jeremy. Oh, you're talking about Josh? Yes. Okay, that's what I'm talking about, too. Though. Okay, good. Okay, good. I can picture out <laughs> Who one. knew there were so many JVs in our <laughs> life? Uh, well, I can picture Jeremy trying to annoy you by doing that also. That's <laughs> the thing. But I respected Jeremy. <laughs> Whoa. Okay. Uh, so I have very specific memories of being at like lunch in seventh That's grade. That's not true. Hold on, I gotta, I gotta address that. Me and Jeremy were like, me and Jeremy were sort of like musical brothers, yeah, at the time. And so whatever one of us got into, sincerely became homework for the other one for this period of our lives. Right. So everything that I'm watching and listening to, he's, I'm also. We're also watching and listening to together. It's like filtering through each other. Yes, things. Yeah. because we were learning. We decided to start a band before he had a guitar kind of thing. So, Or he might have had a guitar for three months or something. So okay. we're learning how to play our instruments together. There was a period where I was just as good at guitar as he was. Right, right. You know, where I was like, no, this is how Inner Sandman goes. I know because I've heard it. And he hadn't heard it. <laughs> and he's just trying to learn it from the music notation in the tab. I mean, and it's, it's, it's an important part so, of listening to the song. So it's not that it's not that I, you know, and then Josh, Josh sort of came into the fold a little later and he was the bass player in me and Jeremy's first band. And Josh was just in a different strand of music. He had an older yeah. brother. You know, and his personality was he was kind of a his he kinda of liked to irritate people. That was just sure. kinda of, that was just kind of his thing. Yeah. So it's not that I didn't respect him. Uh yeah. I know that. The, yeah, the you know that, but I don't I don't want anyone else who listens to this who knows that. Like I don't it's not that I don't respect that. Respect right. him. It's just it's just that Jeremy and I had a very you know, we were like brothers. And so um I mean like musical brothers. Me and Josh were like the Neville brothers. Fuck you. Like the Almond brothers. <laughs> the Almond? The Almond brothers. The Almond brothers. Um, we're just just they're just some nut farmers from down south. The Almond brothers. Anyone yeah. but the Mounds brothers. No one. So, but yeah, but me and Josh were more. We were we were we were more really really great friends. But musically, we sort of went our own ways pretty quickly into high school. Sure. Um. So whereas like me and Jeremy played together until he moved out of the country so <laughs> yeah so anyway d but different yeah different wavelengths there but yeah so yeah so, i that that was a barrier for me getting into 311 because josh would just uh, <laughs> and uh, i really don't remember that specifically but i can totally see it happening and it would make me so mad well, so to so to in the same vein i have very specific memories of like sitting at lunch in seventh grade with like Josh and like Chris Connor and Andy Connor yeah, man. and just singing the lyrics to Down yeah, over and over again yeah, out loud yeah. for everybody to be annoyed with. Dude, that was our first band. It was me, Jeremy, Chris Connor, and Josh Baker. That was our first band. Nice. Nice. So So 
anyway, I got into 311 pretty early as well. Uh, gotcha. I, I guess I should. Uh, now, were they? Because a lot of people I talked to were they. They they end up being like a gateway band, or Three Eleven does. Yeah, or they sort of, huh. like some people I've talked to that sort of are in our sort of same sphere, like primarily rock guys. Like Three Eleven becomes their gateway and like opens all these doors into like funk and reggae and hmm. and all these types of things for them. Okay. Did it? Did Did Three Eleven do any of that for you? Not directly, but I think like. There was a time where I started getting into like dub weirdly. Okay. For like a, a couple of years, I just like started discovering it, and uh, that's that could have been where that came from. I guess now that I think about okay. it. Okay. Um, but no, not directly. I don't well, did so. you stay a Three Eleven fan? Yes. Okay. Oh shit. Yeah, <laughs> that was a quick answer. Yeah. So a lot of people fucking hate Three Eleven. A lot of people think they're just like kind of garbage oh, really? and kind of bullshit. Really? And they kind of are in a way. <laughs> it's like they do a 311 cruise and shit. Like, fucking what? Okay, no. <laughs> and they're kind of like, I love 311. Folk. They're kind of fucking goofy though. Why is 311 bullshit? They're like a bunch of fucking white dudes just trying to be like reggae. And they're just not, but they're really good. <laughs> they're really good at the thing they do. Yeah. Yeah, I, they're undeniably bullshit, but I also just love them. That's really funny. So yeah, so so speaking of of white dudes wanting to be something else, so <clears throat> I guess it was two years ago. I spent like a month, maybe, or two months or something. I listened to nothing but James Brown. Like that was mm-hmm. pretty much that was all that was in my car. That was most of what I listened to for like a, a um you know six weeks or something. Right. Now that then when I went back after that and sort of really absorbing James Brown's music and trying to like replicate a lot of it on the drums and whatnot, then when I went back and listened to Aerosmith's version of Mother Popcorn, I was far less impressed. <laughs> yeah, I, I was like, oh, this is really cool that y'all like that, but this is this is not right, guys. <laughs> this shit might fly in Boston, <laughs> but well, yeah, probably. So, so anyway, yeah, I mean, I, I, I want to say like another, another aspect of these lists, I think that we sort of tacitly agreed on mm-hmm. was that we're not going to put like, like we have Nirvana songs on here. Well, we have the same Nirvana song actually. Well, but, I, I put those on there cause it was extremely important to me. Say, same here. But just as a good example here is like, yes. we're not going to put smells like teen spirit because everybody knows that song. Right. Right. So I, I kind of ended up taking that track for every single artist on here didn't really intend to but i just sort of ended up doing that yeah because yeah because if you you know if you're gonna put well like you said if you're gonna put 311 then everyone know everyone knows that if you were if you heard 311 in 1996 or 95 that you heard the song down yeah like if there's one 311 song it's probably that one and so i have all mixed up on here right which you know. also was just a killer song. It's great. It's a great video. It's a great song. All this stuff. It's. I, I think what. So when I did get into them, my favorite 311 songs were their ballads. Like I, I got, the when I finally like got into them, it was because of Amber and because of their version of Love Song. Oh yeah. Okay. So it was it was their poppiest, yeah, right? Most mellow sellout stuff that I was <clears> like, <throat> this is amazing. Like so, I, I didn't need their like pseudo heavy stuff. You know, do 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 do. I keep that shit. I don't. I, I, well, okay. <laughs> we'll we'll talk more about that on the next episode. Okay. 
definitely. Um, so now, so the next thing you have, or the next thing I hear was like Alanis, and so something I wanted to I wanted to point out was it is impossible to overstate how pervasive Alanis Morissette was in 1995. Totally, totally. Like I. I went back and listened to this album just again a few years. I go back and listen to it every couple of years or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I I forget every single time how many of these songs were everywhere. Right. Like half this album was just everywhere all the time. Right. So you Ought to right. Know and Ironic and hand, One Hand in My Pocket and mm-hmm. uh, Head Over Feet yeah. and just all this shit. Right. And then uh, the one I have on here, which is All I Really Want. Yeah. Was maybe like the redheaded stepchild of that group in a way. Sure. I feel like it got maybe the less, the least play. And- I didn't really get into her. I got really, really into her second album mm-hmm. uh, in the early 2000s for whatever reason. I don't know why. And it's really an interesting tidbit is that there's a uh, her live drummer was Taylor Hawkins. Right. And there's a DVD that I saw somewhere of, of Taylor Hawkins just killing it with that band live while Alanis is running around in like a t-shirt playing <laughs> to an arena of 20,000 people doing sort of a proto Billie Eilish impersonation almost like totally channeling that same vibe and cool. and Taylor just destroying it it's incredible and then the, her next drummer was this dude named Gary Novak who was known for playing like jazz fusion and playing with Chick Corea and shit it was huh. it was so weird that that was couldn't have gotten further away almost. right there that was the direction she chose to go on the second album but that yeah. second album is amazing it has a really cool vibe to it but uh she never really made anything else that was like jagged little pill how could she and Jagged Little Pill itself was like so unlike her previous couple albums, which were like just bubblegum pop. There were albums before Jagged Little Pill? Exactly. I didn't even know. Yeah. They're they're just pop albums. How about that shit? And then she she got together with the the producer of Jagged Little Pill. I forget his name at this point, but like Yeah. And then they made that. And it's like How about that? Fucking hey, dude. This right. album's killer. <laughs> well, and it really captured a moment, it yeah. seemed. And Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. So all right, so then like you have like Allison Chains here. So I had the Allison Chains track from Last Action Hero, which that track's just amazing to me. There's it's just a great track. There's just there's and I what I remember lo- loving about it when I was a kid was there's just a vibe and a tone and a sound and a feeling yep. that you got from that riff and those vocals that you just could not get anywhere else. That's how Allison Chains feels for me, just as a whole, though. But for some reason, I never really got into them. But I had two Allison Chains albums. I had the self-titled one, mm-hmm. which I listened to a lot. I know, I know it. I know all. I know all the songs, but it didn't really like grab me the way that other albums were grabbing me. And then I have the unplugged one, which like I I like the hit the hits on there but you know so for whatever reason Allison Chains didn't really grab me did they but and I know you're a huge Allison Chains fan did yep. they did it happen from the start did you hear them and then be like this is my shit Pro- I don't I don't really remember honestly but like when you're talking about Aerosmith earlier mm-hmm. that was like I had there are a scant few bands that I can just say I like this band 
period. Their entire catalog, you put any song in front of me, and I'll listen to it and love it. Alice in Chains is one of those bands, for sure. Even with, I almost called him Robert Duvall. <laughs> Uh, Let's consider an alternate timeline where Robert Duvall sings for Alice in Chains. So the answer is no, because I haven't listened to any of those new albums. None. Uh, that's not true. I listened to Blue Turns to Gray or whatever the fuck it's called. The first one that they did with him. So you just consider that a different band? Pretty much. Yeah. Okay. Like, without Lane Staley, it's just a different thing. Yeah. And I'm not saying that the new stuff is bad. Sure. It's just not the same. It's not... They don't do the very specific things like you're talking about that made Alice in Chains so, like, that work so well, like, so seductive in a weird way. I hear what you're saying. I hear what you're saying. Uh, and that, for for the albums that you had, like, the self-titled album, the one with the dog on the front, mm-hmm. the three-legged dog. That was <clears> the <throat> last one they did before he died. That was the last studio album, yeah. yeah. Right. Uh, that's a weird album. It, it is. It's just a strange album. Like, there's so many weird, long, drawn-out droning tracks on there you're right except it, for like again i think is the right. one and heaven beside you is and it, yeah is the one i that was the one you heard on the radio a lot yeah you know yeah uh but a lot of it's just like really long droning right. slow uh and a lot of that works really well in the unplugged session hmm. interestingly uh and i've come to like that album a lot more but it's not it's it is different from like facelift or dirt mm-hmm. or uh I mean, that's kind of all they had. Then they had Sap and Jar Flies, the two EPs. So I went today after I'd listened to all the lists. You know, I started to like, all right, well, let me go pick on, let me go dig into some of these rabbit holes here. And I listened to the Jar Flies EP. And I was like, this is fucking amazing. Dude, it's it's one of the best pieces of like recorded music as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. Straight up. It's so good. And so I'm assuming that you picked that that one track, the what, Wasp and Whale Whale and Wasp. Whale yeah. and Wasp, yep. because it's weird. It is weird, but and, also, and everyone's heard like no excuses or whatever. Yeah, the, the rest of that album, I mean, yeah, pretty much. Uh, but it's like th- that track specifically uh, does that thing for me. Like it gives me that feeling. It's mm. like no one else was doing shit like this. Yeah, this was this was a, a Seattle grunge band, and they didn't sound anything like. That was a thing I was thinking about. As yeah. well. So so that is kind of an interesting thing that, that we should probably talk about that is just sort of how <clears throat> how pervasive the grunge aesthetic was in ways that I haven't really been able to articulate and unpack until the past few years yeah. of this sort of because grunge was a reaction to sort of what came before it. And the, the main thing that grunge was selling was a type of sincerity. Yeah. And that, even though we were very much into metal and were making heavy music, this idea of sincerity was extremely important to us. Yeah. Even into the mid-2000s when we were playing playing out and we were playing in other cities and things like that, we were such dicks about, like, if we didn't believe you... Like if we didn't believe, like if you, if there was any sense of that you were playing your music for other people, then we hated you. Yeah, to a fault. Yeah, to a fault. Oh, we were we were just dicks, also in a way. We very much were. So we very much were. But I I look back now and I connect that to sort of this, 
you know, our first experiences of listening to contemporary music, it was all, it was grunge. It was about this yeah. really sincere, weird music and, and putting these things sort of back to back with each other and putting Metallica and Aerosmith back to back with Stone Temple Pilots and Nirvana and Smashing Pumpkins, the, the, the contrast is stark and not just sonically, but sort of in the tone of the lyrics and right. what I was able to sort of put my finger on looking at these, looking at all this in a zoomed out way is that there is a confidence in pre grunge music, I guess, or pre grunge rock music, the pre grunge rock music that I was listening to in Van Halen, Aerosmith. Oh you yeah. Know. It's like nothing but in some cases. Right. And, and, and it, and it might not necessarily be confidence you know, it's it's at least confidence in how the world works. Yeah. And so even Metallica stuff, you know, like there there is a firmness to it, almost a stoicism, you know. Right. Of okay, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about something really fucked up. You know what I mean? But this is reality, and this is what reality is. And and it sort of made me think about our our last episode where we were talking about art records and whatnot, and sort of understanding again, like what. What threw people so much about Load for Metallica or the pop record for U2? And it was not just a sonic change or an image change. Excuse me. It was a it was a tonal change and a, a perspective change in the lyrics because there's a lot of there's there like all of a sudden on Load or on Pop, it's not about confidence. There's like some doubt and some weirdness in it. It's abstract. All of a sudden, you know, I wouldn't say that there's necessarily um, a lot of doubt on in the in the theme themes of the lyrics on load. But there's de- there's definitely abstraction. Mm-hmm. The lyrics are very abstract compared to before. It was like, I know exactly what this song is about. And yeah. on load, you're like, I think this is about drugs, <laughs> but I'm not sure. Right. And and so but. But that, yeah, that was something that I sort of I thought I had while I was piecing this together is that. You know, listening to Stone Temple Pilots and and all the lyrics just feel. Does anyone know what any Stone Temple Pilots song is about? It all just feels like stream of consciousness. Yeah, not so much. But it's incredible. It's amazing, and it makes yep. me feel things. Yep. And I have no idea what it's fucking about. And that's so different from what rock music had been just a few years prior. Yeah, like, the, I don't have a good, I don't have a good way to sort of lay it out like that in my mind, but the, the way that I, uh, the way that I feel that, I guess, is that when I would listen to things like old Metallica or anything from the eighties or before that, really, mm-hmm. despite some of it being like overtly about weird shit, if not like occult shit in a weird way, Think of like old like Zeppelin and things like that. We're very okay. like mysterious, sure, and whatever. And Metallica and Slayer are very just like fucked up shit right. for, the, for the time, anyway. Sure. I never really, I never really painted a picture in my mind about any of that stuff. It because, like you said, it was very like matter of fact in mm-hmm. a way. Mm-hmm. It was very less like here it is, it's pretty straight ahead. Whereas right. anything like the like Purple, the album Purple, for example, by Stone Temple Pilots. That whole I mean, that was like one of the first alternative albums that I really listened to. And that whole album is just a trip of just like 
bizarre pictures forming in your mind, and that's yeah. what I love so much about yeah, it. Yeah, it is a lot of imagery. It's, I hadn't really thought about it like that. You're it's just right. Weird shit to think about. Right. It's it's like that. You know, like the the as opposed to you know even like Metallica's. Like like their Lovecraft stuff, like the thing that should not be. It's not like it's it's called the thing that should not be. It's very clear. It's right. not the thing that maybe should maybe not be. Maybe sometimes. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's weird because like if if you've ever read a Lovecraft story, it's very vague. Yes. It's very nondescript in a in a creepy way, and that's what is creepy about it. Right. Whereas a, if you're writing a song about it, almost by necessity, it has to be descriptive and. It does not. You can't get the same effect from it. So, despite yeah. the fact that they're writing a song about a Lovecraft adjacent thing, mm-hmm. it's not going to have the same vibe, uh, right? And that, that's fine. And that song's great, but it's not going to get you that. Yeah, yeah. It, it, yeah. It, it, and so, but yeah, like that sort of that abstraction that and it, and it became okay in grunge music. It became and this this sort of became a hallmark of of new metal that really resonated with us that was really important it became in grunge music it became okay to be vulnerable yeah it became it was okay to be vulnerable inside of music that had distorted guitars and big in your face drums and i don't know that that was the case before cuz i think of i think of it Pearl certainly Jam. wasn't popular before right. if anything well, i'm right. sure bands were doing it but not at a level like that, right, and not in a not in a like not in a maybe maybe in a way that that track that that just wasn't tracking the way that Pearl Jam tracked, I guess, in a yeah. sense. Because speaking of Pearl Jam, I have to like say something okay. because I didn't get I didn't get into Pearl Jam until much 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 later. Okay, um, I didn't like them at the time. There's a reason they're not on my list. I <laughs> gotcha. And so I have two Pearl Jam songs on my list. Right. And so what I wanted to say about them was <laughs> what I felt about them at the time was so fucking stupid. <laughs> and and it sort of plays into the thing we talked about last time about this whole narrative in the in the music press at the time of rock versus or a metal versus alternative and mm-hmm. all this sort of stuff and you would see interview footage like when Kiss did their reunion tour in 96 and 97 like they would talk about like well we came to show bands how it was done that you when you put on a show you don't just go out there and look at your shoelaces people are tired of seeing that like that Ugh. would be the kind of shit that Gene Simmons would yes. say and totally. so then you sort of extrapolate that out and like well that's what grunge bands are doing that's what alternative bands are doing and well what alternative band am i hearing on the radio oh, i'm hearing pearl jam so it's a, so so you assume that that's what they're doing like these guys don't you know they barely know how to play their instruments you know da 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 whatever right whatever bullshit gene was slinging don't get me wrong i love kiss i went you know i, I have a i have okay. I, ha- I have a kiss phase that i went through okay okay like, i do not i do not so, i do okay fair i do gotcha. i do i could i could give you 10, 10, 10 kiss songs that you could put on anytime any day <laughs> and i will smile and love every second of it uh paul stanley paul stanley is a gift from the gods of music as far as I'm concerned. However, but but hearing shit like that, and I mean it wasn't just Gene Simmons saying that, like 
that was this that was that was what all the fucking it was a pervasive it attitude. It was. It was what all totally. the butthurt fucking rock guys were saying because they weren't getting radio play and tour support anymore. Yeah. All the hair metal bands before it became incredibly sad for them to be doing so like ten years later. Right. And I mean, and there is a tangent there of how a lot of death metal bands suffered because of this too, because which, you know, is sort of its its whole other thing. Yeah. Uh, a lot like a lot of death metal bands because there was this weird death metal boom in like 92 or something hmm. 90 to 92 and they all got signed and then they all stopped getting like tour support and shit like that in like 93 or 94 because oh, wow. yeah because metal became like a a bad word yeah and yeah but it's like oh so you think about these these stereotypes that were floating around at the time of like oh they stare at their shoelaces and they can't play their instrument and then you cut to pearl jam and mike mccready is playing like shred your face guitar heroisms all up and down the stage and you can't find Eddie Vedder because he's literally hanging from the rafters. <laughs> literally the rafters, yeah. And, and it's like, gosh, what a boring show. <laughs> and, and it's just, it, it's like it's so predictable. They don't even know if they believe it. You know, it's just such horse shit that, yeah. that, that, that a band like Pearl Jam could ever be accused of anything, of being less than amazing musicians, of being less than sincere, of putting on less than an amazing show, and that's that's the thing. It it, it seems stupid. I would I would imagine that that hearing people say that, he hearing that that was ever said about Pearl Jam, should be a shock to someone right now. But that was the kind of shit that was slung around yeah. at, at, in the mid '90s about alternative bands. Yeah. You know? And I mean, testament to that is look at all those unplugged sessions that happened mm. around then. You had right. Nirvana, you had STP, you had Pearl Jam. Did STP do one? Yes, okay. extremely good. Okay, yeah, Pearl Jam was a very good one. You had Allison Change, which is which is in my opinion the best. Like, if you've ever seen the video mm. of that performance, also we all know the best ones were Eric Clapton and Kiss. Oh, did Kiss do one? They did. God damn it! <laughs> What's the point, right? Oh boy. <laughs> uh, Oh boy. Anyway, uh, yeah. So the bands like that were able to do that, you know. Were, oh, I see what you're saying. We're like, able to transition into that format and make it work like I even better in some cases. Right. I understand what you're saying. That that Nirvana unplugged album is shit. <laughs> that, that album. <laughs> Sorry, that's not what I meant. Uh, <laughs> no, um, uh, that that album is so fucking good. It's it, it's still so good every second of it. Yeah, totally. I it's 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 unfathomable how good that record is. It really is, and it's so like I, I probably go back and watch the Allison Chains one once every couple of months, and the Nirvana one like once a year or so. Mm-hmm. And it hit me hard the last time I went back to watch the Nirvana one, just how much of a big middle finger that is to everybody. Really, in in what way? It's it's like eighty percent covers. And they just don't give a shit what anyone wants. If you if you oh. watch the full performance, it's like I'm up on YouTube. Okay. Or there's a DVD I think they released. Uh, it's just like Kurt just talking shit to everybody the whole time. Really? Just not caring at all. That, that, But they're they're there to play music, but they don't care what you want to hear. And it was just such an interesting, like... Right. Wow. Right. And it's so funny that there was ever a moment that, that we would have talked shit on Nirvana or that aesthetic yeah. because that's exactly the kind of thing that we were trying to t- channel 10 years later. <laughs> we literally did that. <laughs> we literally did those things. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, I hadn't, and I remember there was something I hearing Dave Grohl say in an interview of 
like he was talking about how much they practiced. You know, like they practice like eight hours a day or something. He said, said, said something that was that, something that tracked is like, well, it's a fucking, you guys practice a fucking lot. <laughs> and, but he says, like, we cared about being a really great band. And I think that that's what's lost or was lost in that narrative at the time was that, okay, well, these guys aren't trying to be guitar heroes. These guys aren't trying to get on. These guys aren't trying to get guitar endorsements. They're, they're trying to be a great band. So it's a different. It's a different kind of virtuosity. Yeah. And so yeah. So what you're saying, like that does that does sort of make sense. That, and I mean, and that was that was the that was the whole rub of the era was that. You know, Nevermind wasn't supposed to do what it did. Right. Because it's just it just was not like I think it cost like thirty grand or something to make that record. I don't know. I don't know where I don't know where I came with that number. I'm sorry. I don't know why it's number in my head. Wikipedia. Someone here. someone correct me. But but yeah. the point is is that that was a record. Like Geffen had signed them, and they were like, all right, well, we'll we're gonna make this record, and it and it'll make our money back, and maybe a little bit more. They because whenever a record company has an album that they think is going to do that, they invest in it and they have a, they, they can kind of have their hands on the wheel and they can kind of, they can control the rollout of it and things like that. And that's not what happened with Nevermind. That shit happened kind of on accident. And then they were scrambling to keep up overnight, essentially. Right. And, and so, you know, like, the tour started and they were playing venues that were one size and then the tour ended and they were playing arenas, arenas yeah. that kind that kind of crazy stuff. And so the whole record industry started hemorrhaging and sort of going and signing up all of these other artists. They would go to every city and find, and just, where's the next Seattle basically? Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's exactly what happened. Yeah. Like that that's, that's like clutch got caught up in that, you know, like yeah. someone shows up and is like, gives the because like virginia or whatever the fuck they were from right like dc dc area yeah and so they would give them you know offer them like a and that's what all these record companies did because it was it was almost more about signing the next nirvana yeah so that some other record company didn't have them yeah yeah so you would just go and you would find all these young bands and you'd give them like five grand and sign them to your record label and then maybe they're going to be the next big thing and a lot of bands got fucked so hard right <laughs> on this cuz right. you'd get like a 5 a $5,000 signing bonus and it would be like well you got to pay up but you you now owe us you have to pay us that back and you have to pay us all the expenses of recording and all this sort of stuff blah 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 through your record sale it was a lot of guys got fucked right i wonder if that was kind of the last big boom of that happening I feel like boy bands in the late 90s might have had that happen. And then I'm trying to think if, like, did emo bands and the sort of the like have that happen in the early 2000s? I think there was some of it that happened with new metal. But maybe it didn't happen as badly as it did then. Yeah, it wasn't on that scale. Because I feel like by that time we were starting to get towards, like, digital and internet. Right, and, 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 and the thing was is that, you know, you were trying to – you know, in the late '90s, or you know, you were trying to scoop up new metal bands and whatnot. There was like an influx of that, but that was sort of a a niche thing. Like there was very few new metal bands that were getting like radio play. Yeah, it's very different than the situation with 
you know, when you had Soundgarden, Stone Temple Pilots. Are Stone Temple Pilots from Seattle? They have their two? No, they're from uh, California, I think. So they're somewhere else. LA, Where? I think. It doesn't matter. Yeah. They're from some They're from some not Seattle place. That's I'm an idiot for trying to use that second point. In my, <laughs> but you have, you know, so it was like... It was, it was like Soundgarden. Some, it was Nirvana. It was Pearl Jam. Right. It was like Mud Honey was a big one at the time. Right. Even Candlebox is from Seattle. I Candlebox think. from Seattle, yeah. Alice totally. Chains. Yeah. Is that, you know, yep. like, and, and like, just like a city that's like going to take up 50% of the radio play on modern rock radio. Pretty it's, much. It's, oh, it's insane. It's unprecedented, right? Like the Seattle scene was a thing. Right. So, and so I don't. Weird thing to think about. Right. Um, so another thing that was interesting about your list was sort of how much R&B was on it. Yeah. Uh, or something that surprised me. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Do you consider this Tupac track R&B? Well... Do you consider it rap? It's, it's, it's I Ain't Mad At You. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, that's a rap song. Um, I'm, I mean, rap and R&B. Okay. You know? Because you also have, like, the No Diggity. So we got No Diggity, which is... Which is kind of right down the middle, I guess. Yeah. And... You know, you have that, you have Nas. Yeah. And so. Yeah, if I rule the world. Uh, so if, yeah, No Diggity, if I rule the world, um, those were huge MTV songs. Okay. Uh, those were like everywhere all the time. Um, and so this was these were like some of the first couple of, and I got Fantasy by Mariah Carey. I guess you could throw that Right, yeah, too. yeah, that's the other one. Uh, and these were like huge all over MTV and you see them all mm-hmm. the time. So I really just got like inundated with that and just sort of loved it over time. Um, but this was sort of like the sort of gateway into into like R and B and rap for me. I see what you're in, saying in a way. It's like actual R and B and rap, right? As opposed to like MC Hammer's uh, Adam's Family track. <laughs> yeah, uh, I you know I started off real. I started off listening to Nas, but then eventually I discovered <laughs> the real shit with MC Hammer <laughs> with the Adam's Family Values soundtrack. <laughs> know what I mean? Oh. Um, yeah, man. Like no diggity. What a fucking great song that is, it, dude! All of it's oh, great, dude. All it's of it's so, so good. Great. I really liked the Dr. Dre song. And, oh, um, keep your head, keep their heads ringing. You're right, because so, I I hadn't heard it. I hadn't heard any of these really. Well, okay. I I felt like I'd heard the I'd heard No Diggity, but yeah. I hadn't heard. That's one you could probably pick up by osmosis over time. Sure, sure. And and like I got really really into Nas a few years ago. Right. I haven't heard a single song of his that I don't love. So it's from fair. all the eras, like you just drop the needle fucking anywhere. Like his most fair. recent thing that came out like a week ago, a week or two ago. Yep. Oh, that sounds great. You know, the shit he did with Kanye. Oh, that's great. The shit he did, the mid thought. It's all great. It's all because he, because he, n- no matter what, it has, it had, there's, there, there, it has his vibe to it. Right. If he's singing on it, it has his vibe. And yeah. it's a, such a cool fucking vibe. Yeah. No argument. Uh, so some something about the No Diggity video specifically mm-hmm. is that it's 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 Black Street, it's Dr. Dre, and it is uh, Queen Pin, who I don't know if I showed up in much else, but she's got a verse at the end. It's it's pretty good, right? Uh, and you got Dre kind of going through throughout, just doing his little drops in there so often. The video, though, I don't know if you remember at the time there were these 
was it Sprite or Seven Up? I can't remember commercials, and they featured Anthony Hardaway from the Orlando Magic at the time. Okay, NBA team, and so you had his name, nickname was Penny Hardaway, and so you also had this little puppet. And they named him Little Penny, <laughs> and it's this little puppet of Anthony Hardaway. What the fuck? So there was this whole commercial thing they had going on with with these two characters. For whatever reason, in the No Diggity video, you got Little Penny, the puppet, showing up, <laughs> playing playing keyboards. And so sometimes it pans over to the puppet, and he's like, <laughs> like staring, like smiling at the camera. <laughs> and so at some point in the song, they say something like, Teddy fucking light it up or something like that. And that's, in the video, that's when Little Penny starts singing. It's fucking awesome, dude. It's great. It's so weird. Man, um, I just, I love this idea because of, like, th- this is in the days when music videos cost millions of dollars. Yeah. Sometimes. I mean, yeah. it's not it's not a heard of. When they made, like, a big deal about a new music video. Right. And so, like, the idea of someone just, like, throwing money at something is like, all right, so now the puppet's going to sing? Yeah. Yeah, that's what's happening. <laughs> the puppet's so, going to fucking sing. Yeah. <laughs> So in, in the first place, I was like, look at this weird shit. But on the second place, I was like, this song is fantastic. And yeah, great. yeah, 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 yeah. I, I feel like – now, this is totally just a weird hot take. Um, and I don't – I'm not – I'm not a connoisseur of Dr. Dre. I like mm-hmm. I like everything that I've heard, mm-hmm. but I'm not going to claim I – I'm not going to claim. But so – You're not a Draniac. I'm not, and and I'm not. I'm not. Like I don't a, know if that's a thing. Or I don't not. know. What Probably it is. is. Um, but I feel like Dr. Dre is a great producer and a great composer, and he just through sheer willpower, like <laughs> willed himself into being a good in a good rapper. I mean, he was in NWA, right? So yeah, he, he had like backup there. So right. it, but, it, but it, he didn't he was just the guy. He he didn't he didn't like he wasn't the MC in NWA. Right. And and so but like okay cuz when you listen to his verses like his like it's like they're all, they're so clever, right? Like the way that he writes it's really clever and it and it's and it you I don't know, like I feel like I could I could like see him like <laughs> like 10 like doing 10 iterations of each fucking line. Because it's not his flow or his voice that's particularly interesting. Yeah. You know? But but his rhymes keep you engaged because of how much – and I, I, I don't know. It was, a, it was a weird sort of connection, but I was like, man, this it, – it felt like that motherfucker worked so goddamn hard <laughs> on these verses. Interesting. Yeah, I hadn't really thought of it that way, but I think you're kind of right. And I'm starting to wonder now, like when Eminem came up – Mm-hmm. He he became Dre's like protege, right? Right, and I'm starting to wonder because that's what Eminem had like in Spades, right? He was like one of right. the best of that specific thing ever. I'm starting to wonder if that's what Dre like saw in him. Maybe, maybe, and huh. because not to in any way imply like himself is what I mean. I see. What you're yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Not to in any way imply like that Nas doesn't bust his ass writing his lyrics or anything like that. Right. But but you could give Nas the phone book. And it would, and he could read that, and it would sound like Nas, it, it, and it would be, in, it would have that vibe, and be yeah, or Tupac, like for example, like sure, the way the the cadence that they have, and the way that they go about like right 
forming the rhythms and the of, phrasing of, of the rhymes. And, and how yeah. it's in relation to the beat and, and all that shit. Yeah. Yeah. So or, that's not really Dre Strong suit for sure. For sure. Or it's just, it's like, that's not the part of it that's unique. Sure. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, it's not that he does it bad. No. It's just that it's not, but. So, it, so another thing about this though, is that this song is keep their heads ringing from the Friday soundtrack. Yeah. 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 So this is, this is basically a stand in for a lot of that soundtrack. I got you. I'm going to put the whole soundtrack on here. And the one song I really wanted to put on here from that soundtrack is not available on Spotify, so I didn't put it on here, which is the Isley Brothers doing, like, trying to tr- trying to find a better way. Okay. I forget. I always forget which, which lyric it is. And that's the song that plays over the intro montage to the movie Friday. Um, Side note, Friday is, like, one of my top three favorite movies of all time. I haven't time. watched it in, like, 20 years. My family used to quote this movie on a regular basis. Mom, it's one of my mom's favorite movies. <laughs> nice. Nice. It's so fucking good. It's like one of the most perfect movies. It's like up there with like Ghostbusters and shit. Right? Okay. Okay. Uh, oh. So th- that's the song that plays over the opening credits. And like you see everybody like waking up and getting their shit done mm. in the morning. Like Craig's asleep in his bed. I- Ice Cube's asleep in his bed. His sister's like asleep on her pillow, like trying not to fuck up her weave because she's mm. got her like tracks in. And it's just playing the song and the Isley Brothers is going off and it's great. Dude, it's, Isley it's Brothers ain't nothing to fuck with. <laughs> there is this random song. It's not even one of their big ones, but it's called Make Me Say It Again. And this random song. And it's like it's like they just it's like they just had a vibe. They were riffing on. And then there's like Make Me Say It Again, girl, and then Make Me Say It Again, girl, like part two or some shit like that. Okay. And there's this hi hat thing that comes in in part two. It's pure fucking magic. It is. I I don't even know how to describe it, but find that track, <laughs> listen to that, and All right. it's it's just the most beautifully, some of the most beautifully perfect human, imperfect drumming ever. It's just magic. It's just, I don't I don't know how to say it. It's it's there's fucking magic in the way that the drums are played on that track. It's fucking special to me but yeah <laughs> fucking isley brothers man you can't go wrong with with the isley brothers um totally so so yeah bjork so yeah um bjork i went i went i started i don't know why i've never intentionally listened to bjork until today nice <laughs> and i just don't think i was ever exposed for whatever reason yeah for whatever reason because Man, <laughs> like it, it, this just doesn't make sense. It was it was MTV. It was for me. Really? Again, like I said, so this was one of the videos that I saw on like Beavis and Butthead. Okay, they were watching the video for Human Behavior, uh, and this is one that like I think for years me and my sister would like make references to this video because we okay. we saw this on there, and it's this weird thing where like she's in a cabin in the woods and she becomes a moth at the end, and it's this bizarre like claymation sort of video. But it's this song. It's just, this song's amazing. Yeah. yeah. But uh, you would also see during that time, you would see uh, like It's Oh So Quiet was a big video of hers on MTV. Okay. Other stuff too. So MTV is basically how I got. That's. Because she didn't get radio play as far as I know. Right. And that that's great. You know, like she was she was just one of those artists that was just sort of in the ether that everyone spoke highly of. Right. But that. I didn't have access to her music, and I never felt so interested that I decided to spend sixteen dollars on a CD. Sure, yeah, that was you know what I mean. And so, so here we are. You got to twenty twenty one, and I'm like, well, let's go listen to some. So let's see what this other, what the rest of this Bjork, 
Bjork is about. Well, luckily, it's all still there for you to listen to. Wonderful. So. Uh, cranberries, they're amazing. Yep, there's they're... nothing to say about that. I put it over to my family because I love that song, and it isn't zombie, basically. It's like it kind ho- of the other one I would put on there. We, uh, Me and my wife, we recently watched that show on Netflix, The Dairy Girls, mm-hmm. which it it's, takes place in Ireland during like the conflict or whatever. And they the cranberries are all through the soundtrack because oh, it takes sure. place during the early 90s or whatever. Okay, cool. Um, and man, fucking cranberries hold up real well. Totally. Like way more than you would expect. Yeah. There, were, there was some uh, not too terribly long ago, like five or ten years or whatever, there was some big music publication or something that gave like their hundred best songs of all time. Mm-hmm. And Zombie was like number one. Because you can kind of see... That song is that song is killer, man. It really is. Like, I may as well sub that in for this. Like, either one of those, really. Sure. Because that's such a like, the production on that song, yeah, is just killer, and the lyrics on the song, yeah, amazing. I'm, I'm always uh, attached. You know, I'll always have a special place for dreams because that's what's on the Woodstock '94, right? <laughs> you know, true. So, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, so this Maisie Star track. Mazzy Star, I think. Mazzy Star, my bad. I'm gonna say, my I didn't ask. Mazzy bad, my bad, my <laughs> Mazzy bad. So, what hit me about this one? I don't, I don't remember hearing this one. This is Fade Into You, is the name of the track. Thank you. And this was all over the radio at the time. Okay, is uh, it was there's I forgot about this vibe. This is a very specific. It really is like '90s proto indie rock chill vibe. It really, really is. And I forgot about like that. That that vibe was on all sorts of tracks all over the place, and I totally forgot about it. Yeah, I mean, this song. I, this is probably like the er example of that. Mm. This is probably where a lot of that maybe even came from. This was like '93 or '92. I forget. Okay, it was kind of early. I feel like this showed up on a lot of movie soundtracks. Mm, also, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, it was probably on like the single soundtrack or you know, <laughs> whatever. Sure. Uh, yeah, this is very much that early '90s, just chill, kind of not giving a fuck, but kind of right. depressed, but kind of like happy about it. Also, yeah, like, like yeah, really there, dreamy. Yeah, 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 yeah. There, there is a yeah. That's a good way. That's a good way to describe it. Uh, so. Onto like your Nirvana, the you know. So I wanted to mention something about Negative Creep. Okay. Because there's Dave Grohl doesn't play on that record. First of all, I don't remember who it is. Do you I know? don't know who it is either. Okay. But it's very confusing because in the it like the guy in the photo has like hair over his face, and you're right. like, I guess that's Dave, uh, Dave Grohl. Grohl. Yeah, I assume so. But there's double bass in that song. Yeah, there, God, there was, wasn't there? Yeah. And so, I don't think it hit me, but yeah. What that means is that my f- my first two real exposures to double bass were probably "Poison My Eyes" from by Anthrax on the Last Action Hero soundtrack and Nirvana, "Negative <laughs> Creep." Classic example. Classic example of you know double bass used effectively. So. I just needed to throw that out there. Nice. And so I think it's interesting that we both because. This is sort of setting up where things are going to go in the next episode or two. And there's this guy who does this. um, He has a show or a a YouTube channel called the Punk Rock NBA. His name is Finn McGinty. MBA or NBA? M-B-A. 
Like gotcha. I went and got my degree, like a, like a business degree in punk rock. Got it. Okay. Good. And so he does inc- these incredible videos where he sort of like analyzes the culture and these things going on around certain genres or certain bands or certain practices or whatever. And he, I happened to catch one of his where he talks about new metal. And if I remember it, this is the way that he said it was that new metal took off because there was this demographic of kids that no one was speaking to. And these were kids who were too emo for metal. So we liked Metallica, but we had too many feelings for that to really do it for us. That's fair. That's a a fair point. (laughs) We were too angry for grunge. So we really liked Nirvana, but we wanted them to be heavier. So I think it's interesting because we both picked Breed, which is like their heaviest track on Nevermind. Right. And then we weren't urban enough to be really into hip hop. Yeah. You know, we lived in the suburbs or we lived out in the country. We lived in the more rural areas or whatever, Mm -hmm. you know. And so that created like this demographic of that no one else was talking to. And so then whenever you have a corn, you know. You have, you have you have those bands that are heavy, like Metallica, but emotional and vulnerable, like Nirvana, you know, and it's like, this is our shit, you know, that's right. That's sort of what set the stage for that. But right. that's what sort of is interesting to me because we both picked like, give me the heaviest <laughs> Nirvana track you got. Yeah, it's like the heaviest, fastest track on Nevermind. Right. If not their entire catalog almost. Right. Um I don't know. That that song like all their hits off that album are fantastic, obviously. There's but, not there's not a bad note on that record. Yeah, totally. But that song Breed specifically holds up in a way that I, I always kind of never expect. It's just like a good solid Yeah. Song. Like, I I guess I don't think of it because it wasn't a single. Right. So I guess I don't think of it in terms of it. Like when I think of anything else that they did, lithium or drain you, or drain uh, anything else that had like a video along it, yeah, and Bloom was a good example. I was thinking of the video, and I was thinking of the vibe of that. Yeah, it was really strong in my mind. Whereas Breed was just here's a fucking punk rock song, almost. Right, and that's a thing that's I think really easy to forget is how much punk rock, or how much grunge was sort of punk rock that sort of got filtered through the arena a little bit of the arena rock aesthetics and sort of instrumentation and sort of whatnot you know what i mean because like mother love bone was like almost a a hair rock band a hair metal band you know what i mean that that became pearl jam and whatnot yeah a lot of a lot of big hooks in grunge right right and 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 like they they weren't just trying to make noise like early american hardcore punk um like I'm gonna I'm gonna turn this amp and I'm gonna hit these chords until these chords sound like how I feel and how I feel is ah you know like there was there was still a commitment to the instrument in a sense you know yeah um all right uh Primus so I thought it was really cool that you picked something from Tales from the Punch Bowl oh, yeah. because I I almost put Winona's Big Brown Beaver on here because. Because that 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 album was my that was my Primus album. That Your was gateway the, to Primus. Well, my or gateway that was the only one. That well, I got 
you know, it was blue collar tweakers on Woodstock '94, yeah. but you know they didn't have uh, "Sailing the Seas of Cheese" or whatever record that's on at Walmart. That's what they it is, yeah. they had pork soda, and they had Tales from the Punch Bowl. So those are okay. the ones I got, and I could never really get into pork soda for whatever reason. And but I got really really into Tales from the Punch Bowl because I was eleven, and it was, it was a beaver. <laughs> right. And I knew all those lyrics. I still know all those lyrics. Yep. Same. But all the other tracks on like I really got into all the other tracks, like Mrs. Nut Butter and and all that and Southbound Pachyderm and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And so I remember seeing Les Claypool's solo band play at House of Blues in like the mid two thousands. Is it the Frog Brigade? It was after that. It was after that? Okay. It was after that. And so this was whenever Primus was on like a really extended hiatus or whatever. Yeah. Okay. And so this was, was we were at the House of Blues in Houston, which has a balcony. And we're we're up there for whatever reason. And the people sitting to us, it was it was whenever that volcano went off in Iceland or whatever. So Man. like two thousand nine okay. or two thousand some somewhere in the late 2000s i feel like that's happened a couple times but i honestly can't remember exactly but like all air travel was shut down okay and so oh yeah okay and so there were these people i think they were i think they're from germany or something like that and so they were they were there and they because they were like well we need something to do and so we'll go to this this is down the street from our hotel. We'll go see a show. So they weren't like Les Claypool fans. They were there to see like an American show. Yeah, we'll, <laughs> we'll go see what the Americans do. <laughs> and so during – and so the instrumentation was really amazing and weird because it was Les Claypool and then it was a guy playing a cello through a guitar amp and then it was a percussionist with a vibraphone and marimba and then a drummer with a bunch of other weird shit. And it was just four-piece. And so they play their set, and their set's amazing, and it's great, and it's weird. Some girl gets on stage and just drunk and knocks amps over, and it was a whole thing. And then for, like, the encore, one of the encores, they start playing Southbound Pachyderm. Nice. Which is a great song, right? Fuck yeah, you should be excited to hear Southbound Pachyderm at any time, no matter what. It's a great song. But there was a dude in the balcony. He ran. He ran from the top. He ran down to the rail and he grabbed both sides of the rail and he like squatted down. He started like throwing himself back and forth. And he was just like, like it was like one of the most aggressive displays I've ever seen any human ever do ever. To Primus. (laughs) Not just Primus. First, do 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 like for like, like Southbound Pachyderm. It's kind of like moody, like I don't know how to describe it. Right, this and song. then like the tom roll, you know, you know, and then it like comes in. A mosh pit broke out. What? A mosh pit broke out for like, that like, song. Like the slowest mosh pit imaginable. <laughs> and they were trying so hard because they were so excited to hear a Primus song. And these poor Europeans, I think they were German, sitting beside us, they got concerned. <laughs> is this is this a riot? What is this? And because I guess they hadn't seen a mosh pit before. But it, uh, but yeah, man. So. Wow. People take their primus very seriously. They do, yeah. And so 
I know Primus is another one of your like Mount Rushmore bands. Yeah. So to speak. So did and and you you had My Name is Mud or no, you had some other track on your other playlist. Uh Pork Soda. Pork Soda, yeah. right. So you'd already been exposed to them through your uncles. Right. So that's kind of the thing. That's why I didn't have Pork Soda on here specifically, but also this album I really, really loved as well. Um, so, but yeah, Pork Soda was my entrance to Primus. I see. And then this album, like you, I got just like way into it. Uh, and that's probably one of my favorite songs off of it, Southbound Pachyderm. Yeah. So, so did you get like, so when you started seeing them on MTV, you were, were you like, oh yeah, this is a badass band that, that my uncles are into or that I'm already into. Did it, were you already sort of totally on board with Primus or? I think at that point I was still more like, I know that this is very cool, mm-hmm. but I wasn't fully like, this is my shit. Given, yeah. I had like given myself over to it. I was like, this is fucking cool. And I know that it's cool. Like intellectually, you know what I mean? Yeah. I don't necessarily feel it all the way yet, but I know it's very cool. That is how I felt about almost all Primus besides Tales from the Punch Bowl. That's how I still feel. <laughs> Like, I know this is good, <laughs> but it doesn't make me feel how I think other people, how I think I'm supposed to feel yet. So speaking of that, okay, Soundgarden. Soundgarden. Because <laughs> I don't think that there's a better band out there that I listen to less. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Than, than Soundgarden. Sound, yeah. Yeah. Uh... You just never really, just never really hit it with them. Just, ne- just, they just don't grab me. I mean, I, I have the Super Unknown record. I like it. Spoonman's great. My wave is cool, you know. But it, it, uh, it has all these elements that it's that it's like this should be a recipe for Richard to love this band. You know, the drumming is really, really amazing and tasty. Yeah, Chris Cornell was a drummer first, and so his riffs are really weird. And they have odd time. And, They're a very strange band in a lot of ways. Yeah, and but but it it never. I'm always like, this is good, but I never I never feel it. Yeah, I mean stuff like stuff like Black Hole Sun, when that came around, uh, was huge on MTV as well and the radio right. for that matter. Uh, and then a lot of stuff from Super Unknown uh, fell on Black Days. Mm. Uh, what was the other singles off that album? Day I Try to Live, which is the song I have on here. Uh, but then you would also hear occasionally on the radio, you would hear like Outshined from the previous album. Right. Or Jesus Christ Pose. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like stuff that was a little bit earlier and wilder in a way. Right. Um, and then right around that time, I guess it was 96, that Down on the Upside came out, their next album. Right. And that had like all the big... Sp- it was less heavy and more like anthemic, mm-hmm. like like uh, pretty noose and burden in my hand, right? And all this stuff became huge singles, and to the point where I kind of got tired of them in a way. Mm-hmm. But I was always able to come back to like Super Unknown specifically, and yeah, it's just a fantastic fucking album. It, and it is, and I'm not trying to take anything away from sure. it. Sure, it's a great album, but I it it and it might just be a weird thing where like I don't know, maybe I like it the exact amount I'm supposed to. But I always feel like I should like it more than I do, and I don't know why. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, weirdly, these days, or like as time has gone on specifically, but in the past like 
I don't know, 10 or so years, Chris Cornell has become hailed as this like once in a generation vocalist. Mm. And I didn't really see that coming, but looking back, I'm like, yeah, he's really fucking good. It's unique. Yeah. My favorite, my favorite Chris Cornell track is like a stone. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Valid. (laughs) Audio slave was a great album. They had a couple albums. Yeah. I think they had two. I only had the first one. So, but, uh, my my favorite Chris Cornell track is probably the theme song to Casino Royale, the James Bond movie. Oh, okay. Which is just an amazing song. Oh, uh, there you go. What's it called? You know my name. Mm. Mm. It's good. The best James Bond intro as well, by the way. I I wouldn't know. <laughs> I wouldn't know. Very specific, like fandom going on there. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. That uh, yeah, that's interesting, and and it's sort of speaking to that. I remember hearing someone this kind of will tie some random things together here of like, so, cause I have some Van Halen tracks on my list. Yes. Uh, I, I love Van Hagar unapologetically love Van Hagar, but I also think the first Van Halen record is one of the best records ever made. I never understood what all the fuss was about. I never really <laughs> understood why people didn't like both. Because I discovered both at the same time. And, okay. a, and a big part of how I discovered Van Hagar was with a lot with that live record. So that had parts of both. Right. right. So they had, you know, there was all, you know, they also had Panama and you really got me and stuff. I mean, yep. it was mostly Van Hagar stuff, but, and, and, and this is the thing is Sammy Hagar is amazing live. And so, and, you know, but, I guess what's interesting about that is that so much of what Van Halen is is Eddie Van Halen. And he didn't go anywhere. <laughs> right. Like he was still playing those songs in right. the same exact way he always had. Right. And and what I understood later on was that a song like cuz there's like songs like Pound Cake. Yeah. You know, which It's a really strange song it, to me. Isn't it? Isn't it? Is, Isn't it? is he like, like just talking about cake? I don't really know. Like, are you? Is that your old trip? Like, we, 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 are we baking? Or are we use, talking just, about women? Yeah, you what? just want to use that old time recipe. I don't. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> but I love that song because it started off with Eddie playing a fucking drill on the guitar. That's right. how he's making that effect at the beginning, right? Which I thought was the coolest shit. Channeling his inner jackal there. <laughs> yeah. And but I'm a much. Later on, I realized why there was such polarization, why people got upset, was because there never would have been a song like "Don't Like a How Do You Know When It's Love." David Lee Roth would have never sang a song. Absolutely like that. not. Yeah. Or and, if, he, if he had, it would have been like the Gigolo version of that. You know, right? It would have been some sarcastic, totally different vibe. Yeah. It would not have been earnest at all. Whatever, however earnest that was, I guess. Right. Sure. Not at all. And so. I, I remember hearing someone say something to the effect of that the that that Sam, that that Van Halen with Sammy Hagar was just a different band that kept the same name. Yeah. And it would be like if Audio Slave was called Raging Against the Machine. That's a good that's a good way to say that, yeah. And sort of similar to what you said earlier about Alice in Chains. Like yeah. with William Duvall, you're like, that's just a different band. Yeah. And that's cool that they do Alice in Chain songs. <laughs> and I'm not mad about it. 
But that's a different thing. Yeah. And I'm not even saying he does Lane Staley's parts poorly. I'm just saying that ain't Lane Staley. <laughs> sure. For, you know. Sure. So So yeah, that's that's because I am someone who later on in life got into early Van Halen. So David Lee Roth Van Halen. Mm-hmm. Is that first album specifically and like Diver Down were like that's so first album. Is so good. Incredible fucking albums. It's so unique and weird. It really is. It came it's, out in 1978. Like, think of all the other shit that was around then and just nothing at all close. It's like a it's a there's so much of it that's like a swing record. Yeah. It's like a big band, you know, there's a there's a weird it's such a weird record. It's so bombastic in like yes. every way possible. In every single way. Yes. Um so I am someone who got into that eventually and mm-hmm. never liked Van Hagar. Mm-hmm. Uh, couldn't really tell you why. It just never clicked with me. Yeah. that, that it, record, it was very much two different bands. That record balance that came out in 95, that, that I had that uh, Don't Tell Me What Love Can Do, that that track, that, that whole album is really fucking good. Oh, that's the one that had Right Now on it, isn't it? No, that was for Unlawful Carnage. Carnal. For Unlawful Carnage. <laughs> for Unlawful for, carnal, carnal Knowledge. Yeah, which right. is the one right before. That was like 91 or 92. That's right. So the live record was the one touring in support of that one. Okay. That I had. Uh, but yeah, like Balance was the one with like the twins on it. On this, You know what I mean? Like you would have heard that song on the radio. Yes, definitely. On 101 and whatnot. And I that, that whole record is so it's, – it's weird but so fucking good. And it's it's one of those that holds up really well because you go back and you listen to it. And it's like, well, this is, this, is, this is just those guys fucking playing. And shit, it's good. <laughs> so so uh, something I want to bring up real quick that isn't on – any of the collections or anything, we've got Black Sabbath on your list. Yeah, so... NIB. The reason that that is there is there was this specific moment that happened where I I sort of found... My mom told me how into Black Sabbath my dad was because... This was sort of when I was getting into this stage of like I had bought a little book. It was about this. It was like the the dimensions of a CD. And it would fit in like a CD slot on like a CD rack. I I had some books like that, actually, weirdly. Yeah, like Metallica or whatever. And this one was like the like a history of heavy metal or whatever. And so and so this became like homework for me. And I remember I think I even might have asked my mom about the Black Sabbath or something because it's like, well, they say that says it's really important in here. <laughs> I should probably know. I should be learning this in school, I, right? I, yeah, I should have been. Learning, I should have learned this in school. And and she's she was like, oh yeah, your dad loved Black Sabbath. That's one of his favorite bands. And so I bought a Black Sabbath Greatest Hits CD at the mall in Humble. And then we later went and ate at Luby's there in the mall because I remember like look I remember looking at the cover and looking at the songs and like what is these, what are these these songs called this what are they gonna sound like right like well, I couldn't wait while you were like eating your buffet fish or yeah, yeah. uh huh okay. uh, chicken fried steak <laughs> okay okay uh and but I. I remember that I have very specific memories of me and Jeremy putting on that greatest hit CD and just rocking out in my bedroom as like seventh graders. Sweet. Just playing air guitar to 
Black Sabbath and, and <laughs> NIB and War Pigs and Iron Man and Sweet Leaf and all of, all of that stuff. And then later, a few years later, I would get I would go really down the rabbit hole with the with the Aussie era Sabbath and, and right. I absorbed that entire era that I became obsessed. And so like, you know, still to this day, Sabotage and Sabbath Bloody Sabbath are some of my favorite records ever, ever, ever. And so they'll they're gonna show up again. <laughs> Because it was, it, you know, but this was sort of, I put in IB because this was sort of the first introduction, mm-hmm. you know, in a sense. So. Gotcha. But, uh, but yeah, and so sort of along those lines, like that was sort of how I got into Slayer too. Was it was like, oh, well, it says they're important. <laughs> this, this was like a Godfathers of Metal book. Something sort of like thing. that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Like an A to Z. And, and so, and I, I eventually sort of went through all these, like, oh, well, they say Iron Maiden, Judas Priest, they say it was important, you know? And I got Iron, right. the Iron Maiden record. I was like, I don't like this. <laughs> this is not for me. I don't, I don't get it. And it takes a certain mindset to get into some to, Iron Maiden. To, yeah, it does. And I, I'm still not there. I, I, I appreciate it, but I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I don't love Maiden the way that people who love Maiden love Maiden. Oh, I don't. I do that either. But I, I love. I love me some Maiden. But I don't. I th- I think my favorite my favorite Maiden track is the outro of uh, She Wolf. <laughs> that Megadeth track off of Cryptic Writings. Is it She Wolf? Is that the one? Yeah. Is it the la- yes, yes, it is. <laughs> That's a fantastic Maiden track. For years, I had that stuck in my head, and I was going through. I couldn't figure out what Iron Maiden song it was. Oh, really? I was so irritated. <laughs> uh, I figured I figured uh, between Jeremy and I listening to that album a lot, you would have... No, this happened like three years ago. Oh, okay. This was very recent, oh, so very good. I was pretty removed from, from our cryptic writings experience. Gotcha. For, for it to click initially. So... But yeah, so Slayer, you know, so I, I, I went to Media Play and I got, and I would always buy live records because they, they had all the songs on it. That was my logic at the time. Totally. That was like a big thing at the time. It's like you want to get the best bang for your buck. And I know all these songs. Right. It's like, well, you know, I could buy, I could buy Seasons of the Abyss, Rain of Blood, and South of Heaven. Oh, man, but I only have like, you know, I could get Decade of Aggression here and I could get right. all of it. Whether or not they're the versions that you know and expect. That's one story, but like, also on these uh, studio albums, I don't know all these songs. So I maybe didn't. I'm, maybe I'm getting shit songs. I didn't know any of the songs, so I didn't have any expectations. <laughs> also that. Also that. So, so my first exposure to Slayer was that live record. You know, so that's why I put that song Antichrist on here. And I remember going back and talking to my friends at Junior and being like, yeah, no, Slayer's pretty good. They're like White Zombie, but 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 faster. Because that <laughs> well, was... You're not wrong. <laughs> that was my read. That was, that was how I interpret, like, with my experience at the time as an 11 or 12-year-old. That was, like, the filter I was seeing Slayer through. It was like, well, you know, like, it. There's he sings fast. <laughs> so it's it's like White Zombie. You know, although to be fair, this uh, the, the White Zombie track you have on here is one of their faster ones. That is true. Supercharger Heaven, yeah, is I, a hell of a song. I remember, I remember writing out all the lyrics like on my notebook in like seventh grade. Like, nice. I probably still know all of those lyrics. I borrowed 
when I first got a CD player, I didn't buy this album for a while, but I borrowed it from my from mm. my uncles. Mm. And so I spent a while. If you remember that insert, it was like <sighs> wild art and all the lyrics in like different art treatments. Mm-hmm. Uh, cool as hell. But I remember like pouring over that insert it's... and all the lyrics and stuff constantly. I that that experience of going through a, a white zombie record is a thing that I will always feel obligated to try to recreate <laughs> with everything I release. It's like if only <laughs> it could be like a white zombie record, and it can't. Nothing Man, can. No, I can't. Nothing can. So, uh, but another so another interesting live video that came across was the monsters of rock. Yeah. So, because I think I'd already had, I already had cowboys from hell. I think, I think I'd already been exposed to Pantera for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. But when I saw the live footage of them playing at monsters of rock, you know, the one they did in Russia or whatever. And so and it was like in a field in Russia, like in the Russia countryside, and there were just like a million people. It there. was insane. It's the footage is absolutely insane. They, they pan out to the crowds, and like the crowd goes back far, but you can't really tell just how far. But you see these towers poking up from mm-hmm. the audience that are like I don't know what they're for exactly. There's like steel structures. It's probably more speakers. Maybe, yeah. Uh, but it's just a sea of people. Or sniper towers. Or something. I mean, this was like right after the Soviet Union kind of opened up, well, collapsed and then opened up. Right. That was the whole purpose of the festival. So, yeah, exactly. And so so you have Pantera, you, and this is them in, like, they'd already done their entire touring cycle for Cowboys from Hell. They were in the middle of recording Vulgar, I'm pretty sure. And so live, they are just fucking on fire. Yes. And so Mm -hmm. when I saw that, that sort of, changed everything that was like okay well that's how i have to that's i want to play like you know what i mean so that's why i put that live version of domination and then also metallica is also on there so then i got a better representation of what metallica is about was this before or after woodstock this would have been before okay so it's sort of been more in the and very much in their sort of black album touring phase yeah so i think it was i think it would have been a year or two. Yeah, it would have had to have been two two years because Vulgar came out in ninety two. So yeah. and so, you know, like Harvest or Sorrow, they're playing shit like that. And so that sort of really solidified, I think, a lot of my metal aesthetic. A C D C is also on there. And so I got like into A C D got a lot right. got an A C D C live record, you know, got into that. <laughs> Black Crows are also on there. They had to lighten up the bill a little bit. Oh. I didn't realize that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's some weirdo Russian band, too. It's cool. very strange. Uh, very cool. So, yeah, just another one of those sort of dominoes of just physical media, some random VHS that I decided to buy or that my local video store had for me to rent, which completely changes my musical trajectory. Right. So weird. And um, let's see. who Who else do you got on here? You have Rage. Yeah, I put I put two rage songs on there. I put uh, uh, "Know Your Enemy" and I put "Vietnam." Those are from different albums, uh, from the self-titled and from uh, "Evil Empire." And so, I think uh, I think that 
I I'm trying to remember how I discovered. It must have just been like on the radio, probably because they did play like "Killing in the Name" and stuff like that. On, Bulls, I remember "Bulls on Parade." "Bulls on Parade" was huge as well, but they they did play stuff from the first album too. I think they did play uh, "Know Your Enemy" from time to time, and I also loved that one at the time because, I mean, for other reasons, it had Maynard on it, and I was like, "That's really cool" because Maynard's on there. Sure, but also that's just that's one of my favorite Rage songs, like the that riff. That like this has been one of my favorite guitar performances mm. from mm-hmm. Tom Morello. Uh, that solo, incredible. That solo was just at, at the time, like when I heard that as a kid, as a teenager, I didn't, I couldn't comprehend how it was happening. Right. Not only how it was happening, like sonically, like because he's using a whammy pedal, and so it goes up like two extra octaves, mm. but also just like how is somebody playing that fast? It's so fast. The guy from Rage is playing that fast. That's so weird, right? Right. That is a he is he's a he is maybe the maybe the best one of the best soloists on guitar in the past to come out and you know in the past in like that twenty year that twenty year span from like nineteen ninety to like two to like two thousand ten could be could be he's Cause, up there because his solos were always so unique they were all unique from each other yeah and they were always memorable. Yeah, well, what was cool about him is he could he could do all that stuff. He could do whatever he wanted, basically. Mm-hmm. But he chose to do interesting things, right? And that's what always made it great, right? Like you're making the sound. It sounds like a fucking cow is in the solo, uh-huh. in, you know, on the Battle of Los Angeles and whatever. Mike, check. Mike, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, it's like you didn't have you could have you could have gone, but you went, you know, and that's I like that. Right, right, right. I I feel like I I didn't get into Rage until later when I got a hold of a VHS of theirs that was half their music videos and half live footage. Mm. And that sort of really solidified a lot of things for, for, for not just for me, but for us. Cause right. These were things that like me and Jeremy and my other friends would watch because later on, which we'll talk about in the next kind of episode we do like this later on, we're going to talk about, cause, cause the thing that happens later is, all right, well, we're definitely in a band. We're definitely musicians. Who do we want to be like? Yeah. And so then that becomes a totally different filter through which you're looking at things. And Rage, those live videos of Rage definitely were a huge influence in that portion. So I, I was completely ignorant of them during this era. I, gotcha. knew, I knew nothing about them. So actually, interestingly, I said that most of this stuff came from like MTV and the radio, but actually specifically Evil Empire – was an album that my dad bought mm. and was way into. Huh. Uh, Is it just me? I always feel like – I've always felt this. The production on Evil Empire falls kind of flat to me compared to the production on the self on the first one and on Battle of Los Angeles. Uh, oh, compared to Battle of Los Angeles as well? Mm-hmm. Mm, maybe. I, I always feel like the self-titled is very much like – a DIY job. Like it feels very raw. Mm. Uh, and then sort of the, everything after that feels kind of polished. Yeah. I, it's definitely different. It, it, it feels, there's a power to the first one. Yeah. And, and there's just, there's a little thing that's missing from, from, um, evil empire. And it might, maybe it's just because the versions of those songs I heard were live versions first. Hmm. So uh, sure. Maybe. So, 
after seeing a live version of Vietnam or Tire Me. They just don't quite hit as hard on the don't. album. They don't. Yeah, but, no, that's totally fair. It might just be that. No, I think you're. I think I think Evil Empire doesn't quite hit as hard mm-hmm. as the first album specifically. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I always really I liked I I really liked the Battle of Los Angeles record, you know when it came out. But yeah. uh, so yeah, so Red Hot Chili Peppers. I'm glad you picked something from this record because I almost put Aeroplane on it. But cool. but I was like I was like I'm gonna leave Blood Sugar Sex Magic because trying to cop that drum beat was an important part mm. of my oh. uh, of my junior high experience because <laughs> you have all those all those slick hi hat open enclosing because he's doing there's one where he does it's it's a really great beat to learn that's to get that stuff down because there's one he opens it before a snare hit and there's another one where he opens it before a bass drum hit mm. and so there's a different you got to get your body you know like it it so so yeah i have very specific memory there's not a lot of beats that i have like really specific memories of trying to learn but that's one of them and then also cowboys from hell is another one because they're but and that but you have a you have a kick drum that's in between your hi hat notes, okay. And so I remember sitting in Mis- in Coach Wilson's history class, you know, <laughs> tapping that out, trying to get that, you know, trying to get that just right, right. So, and then it would take me twenty years to be able to play the rest of the song correctly. But, <laughs> um, um, shit, I was gonna say something. Uh. Yes, instead of instead of warped from one hot minute, I almost put deep kick from one hot minute. Mm. Do you know that song? Mm-mm. Are you familiar with that album very much? No, not so much. That that was it was like okay, well, you like like me and Chris Cotter was like you buy one hot minute and I'll buy Blood Sugar Sex Magic. <laughs> okay, and so and that was just, it was like a coin toss, and oh, so man. he had he had that one. And I so Ooh. I I'm not very familiar with that record. Oh man, like Blood Sugar Sex Magic is like a classic. So you probably want or you probably won on that deal. Oh, I definitely did. Uh, Warped has some or jeez, uh, One Hot Minute has some great stuff on it though. Uh, for example, Warped. For example, My Friends. For example, Yeah, Airplane. Great songs. Anyway, Deep Kick is the song about like it opens up with spoken word for like mm. a minute, and it's. Anthony Kiedis was like saying how shit was weird when he was a kid and shit was kind of strange and they had to like do a lot of weird stuff. And then it comes in with this like boom, boom, and it just goes into the song and it's just a bizarre set of lyrics about like, I have, I always imagined it was him and flea. It's okay. like him and his friend, but I always imagined it was him and flea. Oh, okay. Doing this weird shit, like sneaking into hospitals and breaking into places and being mm-hmm. weird, like tagging shit. And then the end is it slows way back down. It's like a sort of a ballad and it's flea singing this time and his terrible like singing voice. And it's Uh great. Anyway, I almost put that on here because that's such a weird song. But that that song always grabbed me from that album Mm. as being just like this is really strange. But it it's you just don't hear songs like that very often, I guess. Sure. But Warped is such a great like chili peppers really do just like straight ahead rock songs like that that's kind of what that is i see what you're saying but it's just a really great song yeah they're they're 
they're they're kind of an iceberg of a band in a way that there's all these there's like there's all these ways that you could only there's multiple ways you could only get the surface of what they're about you know and so because you could just listen to the things that they did pre blood sugar sex magic mm-hmm. and be like oh man well this what a fucking crazy weird incredible funk rock band right and then, or you could just listen to blood sugar sex magic and or you could just and, and it and but there's always this weird movement and always this weird you know they're very they're very unique and very prolific and like there's never been a time when they were getting a lot of radio airplay that there was anyone else on the radio that sounded anything like them. Yeah. yeah. I mean, maybe in the early nineties, like, cause there was like, like if you listen to the Encino man soundtrack, there's like infectious grooves and things like that. And so there's a little bit of that whole funk rock thing that like bubbled up, but that was very brief. And I, none of those other bands survived. There's no, no, no other bands are getting away with like slap bass in a pop, in a, in a, in a radio song. Right. In like, a radio hit. There was nothing on the radio at all. That's not like that. I always associated Chili Peppers closely with Primus. I think for the bass weirdness okay. reasons, I guess. Oddly, I did not. And just that they're weird bands in their own right. Right. Um, so yeah, nothing deeper than that. The other thing that's really, you know, like from a drummer perspective is Chad Smith is a really amazing, he's not just an amazing drummer, but he's an amazing sort of representative of the history and the the tradition of drumming because he number one he he's the exact right drummer for those songs and it doesn't matter what song it is it doesn't matter if it's some crazy bombastic thing off of blood sugar sex magic or mother's milk or one hot minute or if it's californication or or a weirdo song from by the way or whatever he's always he always finds a way to do the perfect musical thing for it. Right. But he's also, he, he's such a good, you know, he talks about Hendrix. He talks about learning, you know, like that Mitch Mitchell and those early guys were huge influences on him and deep purple and all that sort of stuff. And then all the funk stuff, like he's, he sits in a really unique node between like the deep history of rock music and and rock drumming and truly loving it and representing it and also of funk drumming and there's just not a lot of guys that that play in the biggest band on the planet that are also really great sort of students of yeah like right like really great representatives of the tradition of their instrument as well and I, i remember so he he did a a thing on one on a modern drummer fest. I think it was 2005. I think it was 2005. And so he did like a duo performance with Ian Pice from um, Deep Purple. Mm-hmm. And so now this is a modern drummer festival. Okay. Like this is chop city for a lot of these things. And what he did for one of his segments was he sat down and he played just a basic 16th note groove. For like five minutes straight. Wow! So you're you're in a you're playing in front of like two thousand drummers, and these are drummer drummer drummers. Okay, these aren't like these are guys that you know like these are all jazz guys. Like they all they know all the licks, they know all the things, right? 
and and he sits down and just plays pocket for like five hours, you know, just just makes him eat it for five minutes, <laughs> you know, just to like make the point of of like this is. This is 90% of what I do. And if you can do all this acrobatics and, you know, whipping your arms around, all, it's like, that's, that's, that's cool. But I'm no, you know, that's, that's, that's not really what this life is about. Right. And, and it, it, I remember getting into arguments with drummer friends of mine because they were like, oh, well, anyone could do that, blah, blah, blah. I was like, yeah, but, <laughs> you know, because it, it made an impact. It really did. It really sort of changed how I thought about things. This underlines the importance of that sort of thing in a weird way. Right. Yeah. And I probably like, you know, I probably took a, a weird interpretation of it and like perverted it and made it just, it made it stupid because it was, because I was like 20, I was like 22 and like <laughs> made it to where like, see if anyone does any kind of technical stuff, then they're not playing music. Gotta you know? go back to the roots, man. Yeah. You gotta go. Duh, 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 duh. I, <laughs> If you have more than two toms, you're trying too hard. <laughs> uh, I think that was around the time period that I scaled my kit way back and all that. So, gotcha. Uh, so yeah, um, there's really there's really only just a few more that I of your list that I really wanted to kind of point something out mm -hmm. about. And then there's one more thing on mine that I want to say. So, I'm so glad you picked that sponge song. Oh, yeah? Because that's always been one of my favorite songs ever, and I've forgotten about it. <laughs> nice, nice. Like, I heard the opening guitar thing, and I was like, Plowed. And it's I Sponge. Fe I feel like that song, like the existence of that band Sponge, the existence of that record is the kindest thing that Stone Temple Pilots has ever done for me, personally. <laughs> <laughs> okay because the only reason that that band sponge was getting getting money thrown at them was because of stone temple pilots and the success stone temple pilots have had uh, you're you're probably right uh, and i'm here for it yeah <laughs> I'm, I'm glad i'm really glad that that song made it into my life but i it would not have made it into my life had it not been for stp and and that's okay that's fair uh, weirdly, this was the second Sponge album that I got into. The first one was Waxed Static, which was their next album after this, uh, which was not as good, though. And uh, Sponge albums also <laughs> aren't really the thing you're there for. You're there for a few really good songs. Like uh -huh. I'm not going to sit here and say that Sponge is like an incredible band, but that song, it's, like you say, mm. and it, this album also had uh, 16 Candles Down the Drain. Okay. Molly is what it's called. Uh, but yeah, this song just, this is such a good song. It's just, just a good song. Yep. It's great. That's it. Yep. Um, I remember, so I want to talk about Great Southern Tranquil and Load for a second. Okay. Because those albums came out around the same time, like May and June, 1996 respectively. And they're, they're the albums, they're the first albums that I remember going and buying the day they came out. And so I remember buying Southern Tranquil the day it came out. I remember bringing it back. You know, I remember opening it and seeing the case and seeing the snake skeleton thing. And I remember putting it, me and me and Chris Connor, pretty sure, put it in my CD player and we pushed play. And then it was like the old stereo commercials where like your hair the, is... The Max L person in the chair? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah the way that that record, record starts. <laughs> yep. I feel like that's, that's another... 
if you had to tell the tale of my musical experience in my life in 10 moments, that would be one of them. <laughs> of just, well, let's see what this new Pantera record is about. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, And so it was completely, you know, just blew my mind, obviously. And I and we we talked a lot about that record last last episode, but yeah, I lo- love that record. And yeah, I I will have more to say about that record later cuz I didn't get into I see. To that until later. I see. I didn't have context for it until later, but I I I loved it, you know, and and then I remember like which song on load do you think? Which of these songs do you think are going to be the big radio singles? Because <laughs> it was like, there's going to be just as many big songs off of this as there was off the Black Album, right? I remember having this conversation with people. Oh, man. Of like, I think it's going to be Cure. I think <laughs> I think that's going to be the next really big one. You know? Oh, dude, the shit that you think about. Or Bleeding Me, mm. you know. Whatever. Please, music, good song. No one thought. No one. No one thought it was going to be Ronnie. No one. <laughs> is Ronnie unload or is that on reload? I think it might be reload. It might be. Oh well. Uh. Yeah, and so the other thing though is I might, I might, um, because in line with the conversation we had last time, because I, I sort of proposed Anima as being a possible art record. Yes. Which you shot me down. You said absolutely not. Yes. So I went back and I listened to I listened to Opiate, and then I was listen, listening to like half of Undertow, and I was like, "All right, this, this is cool, dude." Anima is on such another level. Like I, I like the first track, like Stink Fist came on. I was like, "This is this is this is practically a different band. This is <laughs> this is such a different like nothing not not to shit on the the vibe that is Undertow and Opiate because I I, I got Anima." Like during this time period, like yeah. ninety six or whatever. Well, no, not not during the time period yet. But a little, but I got it, and, and I didn't get it. I had to go back and like start at the beginning and work my way up to okay. it. Okay. Um. But, dude, this is Stinkfist. It's dude. Fuck you. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. Inema, well, Inema okay. is an art record. Okay. So, but to go, but to go back to that, my my <laughs> argument for for why not is because yes, there is a very clear evolution from opiate to undertow and from undertow to anima and so on but the so on is where i got hung up i was like it, that keeps going okay to me lateralis is just as much of a weird jump from anima mm. Mm. I, I, mm. I i i feel like there's like a a cha-chink a cha-chink and then they're just sort of like sort of pl- like like playing around in the same sandbox. Like I feel like Inema and Lateralist are just different sections of the same sandbox. Yeah. You know. Eh. 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 Agree, disagree. Yep. Uh Stink yeah, Stinkfist I saw when that video came out on MTV. Mm-hmm. Which is how it was like a buzz clip and all that shit. Right. And so I saw the weird like sand person in the fucking creepy room with the TV and the smoke and uh, the taking himself apart. I was like, "What is this?" Right. I need it's why I went out and bought the album like very shortly after. I bought that album like we went to the mall with my mom and her boyfriend at the time, which is weird to think about. But I I remember bringing that song that album home and it had like the holographic cover on it. Yeah, so like, like California, at, like dropping off. And... Staring stare at that, and you could put. Yeah, that's what it was. You could flip the insert all different ways and see it do something different. It was very, very cool. Right, and the Bill Hicks quote and in the there. Bill Hicks. I was like, who the fuck is Bill Hicks? <laughs> right, it's probably mm-hmm. some guy. Maybe he's made up. I don't know. Uh-huh. I'm like twelve. 
or 14, maybe, I guess at the time. Maybe he's made up. Yeah. What the hell did I know at the time? And just like pouring over the liner notes were so bizarre. It's weird, weird stuff in there. Uh, oh, God. Man, what a weird album. Uh, it's like, yeah, you have Bilbo Hicks. <laughs> Bilbo Hicks. <laughs> just made up. Oh, shit. Anyway. That's great. Yeah. Yeah, I remember later on seeing the Bill Hicks philosophy CD and buying it simply because he was mentioned in the Inema record. Right, and right. Sight unseen. Yeah. Um, Fair. So, well, well, Rad, uh, is there anything anything else you wanted to throw out there? Um, that Sonic Youth track is great. I've never heard that before. Dude, yeah, that's another... I guess that was everywhere. That was on the radio and MTV. Maybe I, maybe I did hear it and I just sort of forgot. Um, so I think the video version was actually like a live version. Uh, but that was the first Sonic Youth I'd heard. It's it's a the Diamond Sea mm. from Washing Machine. Mm. That's a, that's a great one. Um, uh, I, I'll, I mean I'll shout out a couple like the Screaming Trees are on here with Nearly Lost You, which is like that's one of the songs that you just like you, you probably heard a lot and you yeah. just kind of forgot about, right? Because I, the Screaming Trees kind of never went anywhere. Yeah, like Mark Lanigan, their singer. Became, That's what I was going to ask. He joined Queens of the Stone Age after a while. That's right, and he's a huge part of that band's like identity over time. Uh, but nearly lost you is a fantastic song. Right. Yeah. And um, oh yeah, there are a few things I didn't talk about. So, uh, Ball Tongue. Yeah. That corn song. So, I remember. This is one of my favorite memories. I was I was kind of sick, kind of playing hooky from school or whatever. And my mom, we went to the mall that night, and I bought Les Exorcisto because I was already a zombie fan, so I'm going for the deep cuts now. Okay. And okay. I bought the first corn record. And then we went and watched The Birdcage at the San Jacinto Movie Theater. Hell yeah. So, <laughs> and then, you know, and then, like, I get home, and, like, I, I remember that I was sick or feeling away because I had, like, a, a pallet or something in the living room. And I had like my boombox there with me. And I remember putting on the corn record. And I remember, you know, hearing Blind. And I, I think like I'd already heard it somehow. But but I was like, oh, this is great. And then it got to Ball Tongue. And I couldn't handle it. It was just too much. It scared me. <laughs> was it like the... And I, I had to... Because it doesn't just... That's not just the intro. No, that's like... <laughs> Many parts of that song, and then are this bizarre like scatting, and it's so intense. Yeah, I had to turn it off. Like it, man, it, like that that album kept staring at me like a horror movie for several days, <laughs> and I had to like power through it. Um, so nice. So yeah, that that was. There's only I think there's only like two albums that that's ever happened to me with that and Mashuga Chaos Fear a Ooh. few years later. Okay, fair. Yeah. So, fair, fair points on both counts. Yeah, I heard that. I put that in the CD player, and then I had to take it out. I was like, I'm not ready for this. I put it on the shelf and <laughs> waited a year. I'll be back later. Yeah, I'll see you guys later. I'm gonna be. I'm gonna get ready for this. Yeah, I need to go prepare and start started to cue the montage. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, that so the Crow soundtrack, man. I wanted to talk about this a little bit because yeah. there's so many cool fucking tracks on here. I just and and. And this and like the last action hero soundtrack. And then there was another one that you mentioned, I think. The way the music was used in the storytelling of the movie was just so incredible. 
and so next level. Like the the Cure song "Burn," the way that it's used for his like transformation scene, uh, oh, yeah. the way that Dead Souls is used when he's like jumping from rooftop to yeah. rooftop. The there's band scenes where my where you have like my life with the thrill kill cult and like a club scene. Same thing with uh, Time Baby, the one that I the song that I put on there. And there's just all of these sort of things that it's just this incredible aesthetic and this really captivating, you know, romantic gothic, I guess, vibe. Yeah, that's what they were going for. So and it's just absolutely intoxicating. And and I think that yeah that that left a huge a huge impact on me and just I mean just you just look at who's on this you know it's Stone Temple Pilots Nigel Raising Machine Violent Femmes yeah Rollins Band Helmet Pantera Wait, man that Violent Femmes song is so good it's <laughs> color me once color me twice their performance on Woodstock '94 is amazing what what songs do they have on here um dance motherfucker dance and kiss off yeah kiss off okay it is yeah yeah it's look it up it's 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 so weird and so fucking cool good but yeah but and i mean and and even in uh last action hero like the that that queensrike song that's in a that's in a car chase scene huh and it and it's so incredible how well it works in that scene you know it's part of the score almost weird i've been meaning to watch this movie again recently same because i I know that it holds up in a weird way because it was like a it was a it it was a satire it was a really really high level meta satire i I saw this in the theater like with my neighbor friend Mm. as soon as it came out and i i just remember kind of not knowing what to think about it it's weird because it was like it was a meta movie and i didn't know what the hell that even meant right like there's a there's like clips of you know, whatever the whatever the Arnold's character's name is, Jack something, and Jack Slater. Okay, yeah, I sure. think that's it. And but they're like in a video store, and it's Sylvester Stallone is on the poster for Terminator Two. Right, it's shit like that. And then you have so he's a character in a movie that a kid from the real world gets dropped into and then this character finds out that he's a character and he's like but i have these real feelings about my son really being dead right that's so fucking nuts <laughs> and and this is this was this was what you know this was yeah this was 93 this is a year after terminator 2 yeah so this is like doing a self referential meta movie whenever Arnold is at the absolute apex of his like Hollywood career. Right. I think True Lies came out the following year. <sighs> the best action movie ever made. So good. <laughs> uh, Did you ever kill anyone? Yeah, but they were all bad. <laughs> <laughs> I, I heard something fairly recently about Arnold after this after this movie came out. He didn't want to do anything else like it or any sort of overt comedies or anything like that hmm. because it affected the way he saw his career huh. or something to that effect. Interesting. I, I don't know where I saw that at, at now, but I'm, I'm a huge Arnold nerd and I, and I can't recall having heard something like that. 
Okay, maybe it was some maybe it was bullshit. So, but but I, I'm I'm not saying it's not true. I'm right. saying I haven't heard that. And I I'm I'm a dork, and I read his biography and all those kinds of things. <laughs> I'm a total Arnold stan. I defer to you. So, yeah. but it but it is weird, and it was like a total box office flop, and all this stuff because yeah. people didn't know what to how to what to make of it. Right. Exactly. But. But how about the, and and then also like a kind of an interesting thing is you have Michael Kamen with Buckethead, right? And then Michael Kamen would be the guy who later went on to do S and M with Metallica, yeah. So Symphony, I think he might have done this version of Dream On too with Aerosmith. Oh, interesting. I think I really don't know. He did uh he did some composing for I think Pink Floyd on the Wall. No shit. As well, yeah. Huh. I want to say that's what that was. So. uh so yeah. So I've, so one more I want to bring up real please. quick and just get your read on it. What do you think about Hook by Blues Traveler? Oh dude, this is such a cool song. Isn't it? Isn't it? <laughs> such a cool song. It's one of my it's one of my favorite like just a standalone song. It's so good. It's, it's one of my favorites. It's so good, man. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, blue, it works on so many levels. Blues Traveler they is so kill good. it. That that was the song. Like I I might have even fucking written it down here. Like, what a weird fucking band. Yeah. <laughs> and not even just that they're a weird band, but how weird is it that they were popular? Yeah, that's that's actually the, the real question there. And it how just how did they get so big? Yeah, and it I guess that I mean maybe maybe this is a little bit of rose colored glass, maybe it's a little bit of nostalgia or whatever, but I really f- you know, rock radio in the mid nineties was really weird. And no, it totally really was. eclectic. It was, yeah. And and even I mean, even in the metal scene, like even later on in like ninety nine, like the uh, the Ozfest lineup for ninety nine is weird. Mm. Is weird. Black Sabbath, Rob Zombie, Deftones, Primus, Slayer, Godsmack, System of a Down, Fear Factory, Static X, you know, Puya, Slipknot. Oh yeah. It's head PE. You know, pretty, it, pretty diverse, all things considered. And the year before that, they had Tool and Limp Biscuit. Right, is weird. And then this weird thing happened in the early to the mid two thousands, where like metal became like just this one thing, and everything started to get partitioned really neatly. Mm. And like, if you were going to be a little bit indie rock, you had to be all indie rock, and you had to be all over there. And you know, but there's. But you would hear Blues Traveler, like all of these things, you would hear them all in a row. Right. Like you would hear Offspring and then Blues Traveler and then Allison Chains and then Alanis Morissette and then the Cranberries and, and Red Hot Chili, all like that's all in a row. Yeah. That, that was modern rock. At right. The time. Alternative modern rock. Right. And it's uh, fucking banana yeah. sandwiches. Yeah. But yeah, th- I mean, this song, I, I can't overstate how fucking cool this song is. It, it works on so many levels. It's a metatextual song about being a good song. <laughs> yes. But at the same time, it is a very good song. <laughs> and the lyrics reference, like, all the different ways you could think of to use the word hook. They kind of do that. Like right. Peter Pan, like the song hook, a physical hook. Like, And then towards the end, you get this, like, virtuosic harmonica solo. And then this weird, like... He's almost rapping at some point, really. Yeah, I know that whole part. It's fucking, it's so good, yeah. and it's just, it's really just good. There, there's a, there was a episode of Roseanne where they, where they guested on Roseanne, and uh, and John Goodman got up and played harmonica with um, 
I can't, oh, John Popper. There it is. Yeah, yeah. I was like the other John. So that, wow. that's like a random child. Did he really play it? Do you know? It looked like it. I hope so. But it wouldn't surprise me if he did, because John Goodman's the shit. Yeah. Um. So garbage. We, yeah. I haven't queer. talked about them. So, yeah. I mean, I guess that sort of in line with the. Because I, I had the thought, you know, like kind of in, in thinking about those first playlists that we did and thinking about like, all right, well, women artists and whatnot. And when was the first time that you really related to a song sung by a woman artist that wasn't about a guy? Sure. You know, almost like a sonic Bechtel test, if you yeah. will. Right. And I think that for me, that would have been the band Garbage. Because none of the songs, none of their songs were sort of like real breakup boy songs. You know what I mean? Not overtly, at least. Yeah, that, that, I mean it was For subtle. Sure. You yeah. know, and um, but you know, only happy when it rains or stupid girl or like, and then, but I, I felt like this song really captured an aesthetic and a vibe and an ethos of that era of certain slivers of that era that, that I had kind of forgotten about, mm. you know, you know, queers to the queer, strangers to the strange. And there was, there was sort of a, a, a pride in, in being an, an outcast and a romanticizing of that, that this song sort of really encapsulated. I mean, I remember in high school, you know, like we were called the freaks on the stage. It was the, and and we use the term endearingly. Right, right, right. We embraced it. And so and but yeah, and then it, it was before I don't know, it just it feels like a very romantic kind of lens of, you know, a bunch of outcasts that that just oh well we just don't really fit anywhere else, but we're gonna find a way to fit together because of you know, we listen to weird music or we read weird books or we have weird mm-hmm. thoughts or whatever. And yeah. And so that, that song captured that vibe. Yeah. For me. So that's why I wanted to throw it on there. I agree with that. So, um, there's really only one other track on here. We haven't really talked about, um, explicitly and that's uh selling the drama by live. So, okay. I, I want to talk. I want to. I have a lot to say about this band, <laughs> so I don't really want to. That's. I think that's why I was avoiding it. But sure. I remember seeing their performance on the Woodstock '94, and being completely blown away and moved by it. Moved by the song, moved by their performance of it, moved by the drumming of it, all of it. Bought the record at the Crosby Walmart. Whew, nice. I'm pretty sure, and I listened to it so much that my mom. My mom was like, you're going to wait. Like, she started to lie to me. <laughs> like, you're going to break that CD. CD's going to blow up in the player if you just <laughs> yeah. keep listening to it like If you that. keep listening to that CD, um, you know, <laughs> you're going to make my electric bill <laughs> go sky <laughs> or whatever. Whatever, whatever, you know. it. But I, I, rem- I remember I was so infatuated with that with that record. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I listened to it start to finish a week or two ago and it is still amazing. Yeah. Some of the things they did after that record not so amazing. 
So that might be what we talk about in the next few weeks because I kind of want to. I because man, I really really love that band. And what a confusing career and discography they have. I I never delved <sighs> that deeply into it, so somewhat deeply here. So yes. yeah, I'll, I'll okay. I have a lot of it, it's almost a trauma I need to work through that you're going to get to be a proxy for. So, um, good. So, yeah. Cool. You got anything else? I think we pretty much hit most of it there. So, all right. Awesome. Well, uh, see you next time. Peace. One of these days we'll get good at ending shows. No, we won't. We won't. Maybe. No. Maybe we'll get good at starting them. Maybe we'll get good at ending them. Okay, maybe. When we figure that out, we'll probably get tired of the whole fucking thing, the whole fucking project. We'll be like, you know what? We've talked enough. We're done. We, we'll get good at starting them, if only for the fact that we can prepare for that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> mm, shit. This is, this, is, this is not untrue. Mm, we'll see. Anyway, bye. if I'm just like really in my head or if it like I don't know or if it's because we we like the first two we like were two weeks apart and so it felt really fresh mm -hmm. and this one were like six days from the last one so it's like I don't have anything to say <laughs> uh, yeah I don't know uh, or if it's just like a weird sliver of, of music so, I don't know. I, that's probably what it is for me. Like, I just don't have a whole lot specifically deep to say about a lot of this stuff. It's just like, yeah. here's what I was into here's at the time. Here's what I was into. And, it, what it, and, did. and it, it affected my taste going forward, but I don't have a lot to say that's, like, yeah, I don't have anything. terribly introspective about it. Yeah. <laughs> so. I think that's fine, though. It's all a process, man. Yeah. It's sort of how I'm looking at it, you know? I um, mean, we, there, were, I, there were, like, four or five on my list we didn't even touch on. I'm like, you know what? I'm good with that. Yeah, to, I guess. You can, yeah, I mean, because, yeah, like, how can we touch on every, it, it, unless we, like, make a very specific point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we didn't talk about, like, uh, the eels. Right? <sighs> yeah. Or Radiohead. Yeah. I see. Or Toadies. Yeah. Some of that stuff I can just probably bring up later. Toadies, I'll probably bring up later. You know, Toadies are what? I'll probably bring it up later. Yeah, yeah. I don't have a lot to say about Toadies except for like, oh yeah, I always liked them when I heard them. Yeah. <laughs> and and I didn't realize how good of a band they were until I had to learn one of their songs for a cover band. <laughs> and I was like, God damn, this shit's weird. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>